This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Get your application for an extension in. Today's the day. Um, our taxes are done. Uh, we owed the owed the state, but got money back from the feds. So net, we didn't have to pay. But it is tough to come up with that initial money while you're waiting for your federal refund. But um, it's April 18th. You know, I remember the good old days when tax day was always on April 15th. But what happened is a few years ago, I think it's about seven years ago or so, don't quote me on that, Washington, D.C., which is a federal creation, so everything that goes on in federal D.C. affects uh, federal uh, federal entities like the District of Columbia. It affects every federal agency, which, yes, does include the IRS. Washington, D.C. started celebrating this holiday called Emancipation Day. And that means that tax day gets pushed back a day. However, this year, April 15th, fell on a weekend. So Emancipation Day isn't until yesterday. So yes, it was Emancipation Day. So today is the day of tax day. So if you didn't get them done yet, you have 23 hours to go. Uh, my colleague Dominic Carter is currently racing home with beads of sweat being mopped off his brow as he makes sure he has all his receipts in order and has counted every deduction. I really dislike the whole tax process in New York. I mean, not in New York, in in this country, but in New York in general, in New York and in the U.S. Because to me, look, we hire an accountant. We don't have a super complicated return, but we want to make sure we don't make any mistakes or get jammed up by forgetting to do something because the tax code is in this country. Forget about what the state adds or what your local city adds. The tax code in this country is behemoth. It's mammoth. If you were to stretch out the tax code, it would almost reach from where I'm sitting to the moon. It's mammoth. If you were to just print it out, you could go to 10 different accountants and give them your W-2 and your deductions, your charitable contributions, your mortgage. And it's not at all unusual for them to come back with 10 different amounts about what you would owe. So for years, I have been of the opinion, since I was a child, really, and since my father was first explaining the uh, tax filing process to me, he, uh, I was of the opinion that there has got to be a better way. So I have researched tax systems all over the world. And I have found that the United States has one of the worst 
tax systems in the country. I'm not uh, I'm not saying more, you know, uh, that we're taxed too much, which obviously we are. It's just so onerous. I mean, everybody, I'm sure, thinks they're taxed too much. Maybe not the Saudis, but everyone else, I'm sure, around the globe thinks they're taxed too much. It's just so onerous and so cumbersome. So for my wife and I, for our return this year, we paid $360 to get our taxes done. So think about that. For the privilege of finding out how much we owed the state, keep in mind, we've been paying taxes the whole year to both the state, the city, and to the federal government. So for the privilege of finding out how much more or less we owe in taxes, we had to pay our accountant $360. Now, think about that. Japan doesn't do that. New Zealand doesn't do that. So what I thought might be fun, and we can make this something of an annual tradition if it goes well, what I thought might be fun is to invite you at 1-800-848-9222, that's 800-848-9222, to tell me how you would reform the tax code you, and explain what your reform would be. It could be silly. It could be serious. It could be something we've heard before. It could be something we've never heard before. And explain to me why you think that would be a better system, whatever it is. 800-848-9222. Let's pretend you're dictator for a day, but you're dictator of only the tax code. You could do whatever you want. You can abolish the income tax and replace it with a national sales tax. You could have a flat tax. You could have a carbon tax. You could have a fat tax, whatever you want. Tell me what you would implement and why. And then, um, and you know, try to be somewhat practical. Like we need money to pay for Social Security. We need money to pay for Medicare. We need money to pay for the military. I mean, you're you're not getting to control the spending side of things. You get to control the tax side of things. And what I'd like to do, if we can, Kenneth, is let's not have 10 people all who have the same tax suggestion. If we have one person that says flat tax, let's have one person that says national sales tax, another person that says value-added tax. Let's try to come up with eight or nine different tax plans rather than have five people who all support the same thing. This way, uh, that gives us a diversity of, uh, of tax plans to choose from and to uh, hear about. So that's it. All right, 800-848-9222 if you want to be a tax reformer. A few years ago, maybe about seven years ago, I came to be a uh, – I came to be a – believer in a very specific type of tax reform. And I'm going to tell you what it was in a little bit, because a few years ago I had the opportunity to interview the man who invented that tax plan, and I think it's right on the money. Pardon the pun, if you'll pardon my saying so. But I think that um, we're a long ways away from there on a practical level from ever getting there. There was a time when I was for a... um, National sales tax to replace the income tax, I'm not anymore. There was a time when I was about 10 years old that I was for a flat tax to replace the graduated income tax plan. I'm not for that anymore either. And I really think a lot of the reforms that we can make to the tax code aren't necessarily sexy. They're simple, like um, doing away with returns. 
I mean, in Japan, in New Zealand, and a bunch of other countries, you don't have to file a tax return. I mean, you think about how crazy it is. The government takes taxes out of your paycheck every two weeks or however often you get paid if you have a conventional job. I'm not talking about someone who has their own business. So why then do I have to file a tax return at the end of the at the end of the country at the end of the year at all? I mean, I I don't think that's a good system and other countries don't do it. I'll I'll tell you what the cynical part of me thinks is the reason for that is because there's a whole bunch of people, accountants, uh, places like H&R Block that make a ton of money by having the tax code be so complex that you need to hire somebody to understand it. So what is your preferred tax methodology? 800-848-9222. Two two eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Let me begin with Brian in Westchester. Brian, are you really a tax preparer? Yes. Right, is that why you're awake right now? Because you're feverishly uh, finishing off tax returns. Uh, I have four more to do. Yes. Okay. All right. Okay. Good for you. All right. Let, let let inform us. What are you going through this time of year? Um, the tax system is just nuts. Um. I need software to do it. You can't even do it manually these days. Um, But, you know, just a very simple process would be just to have a flat tax. This way, everything is, like, equal to everybody else. Okay, yeah. I mean, there is a certain fairness to that and a certain simplicity to that. And uh, I, uh, I I, get it. I, I get why that's so attractive. And thanks for the call, Brian. I spoke about this with T.R. Reed, who wrote a wonderful book on taxes about uh, 12 years ago, 11 or 12 years ago. It's called A Fine Mess, A Global quest for whatever he calls it, a better tax system. And we spoke about the tax, uh, the flat tax idea because it is so popular among so many different quarters. This is what uh, T.R. Reid said. Uh, What happened is about 12 countries in Eastern Europe actually tried the flat tax. Steve Forbes went over there and sold it to him. Um, This is a tax where everybody pays the same rate, maybe 17, 18 percent. And, you know, what could be fairer than that? Everybody pays the same. Here's the problem with it, Frank. It doesn't bring in enough money. You can't set that single rate high enough to bring in the money you need, but low enough for average working families to be able to pay it. You really have to graduate the rate so that the richest people pay at a higher rate. And what happened in these Eastern European countries is they just couldn't bring in the money, so they raised other taxes. Get this. In Estonia, the the Social Security tax in America is 15 percent. In Estonia, it's 39 percent. Hungary has a flat flat income tax, and to make up for it, they have the highest sales tax in the world, 27 percent on everything you buy. So the flat tax sounds good, and I say in my book it's a great idea. If you're a former Soviet uh, uh, country that gets its freedom and has everybody is equally poor and it has no investment income, for those countries, it worked for eight or nine years. And then they find out it doesn't bring in enough money. So Steve Forbes is a great guy. I like him, but I think he's wrong on the flat tax. It just wouldn't work in the U.S. So uh, if you look at the research in around the world, it has not worked. And the countries that he's cited, Estonia, that T.R. Reid cited there, Estonia, Hungary, even Russia, 
it doesn't bring in enough revenue. And you have to raise all these other taxes, including Social Security. So I don't think you can point to anywhere in the world, not even Russia, where the flat tax has really worked. A lot of places have tried it. And a lot of places end up either abandoning it or needing to raise their other taxes. I don't think you bring in enough revenue. Additionally, the problem with the flat tax, and again, I want to hear your income tax plan, 800-848-9222. I'm expecting some very creative ideas here, so I have some very high hopes here. So I hope you'll call in and not disappoint me, 800-848-9222. The The problem with the flat tax is the problem with the income tax generally. You know, when I walk around my neighborhood, we, my wife and I like to go on walks with our son, and she will say, oh, boy, that's a beautiful house. That must be a fortune. Look at this beautiful landscaping. Look at that beautiful house. And she says to me, you know, between the two of us, we make a decent amount of money. We could never afford a house like this. How do all these people have such nice houses? And I say... I guarantee you all of them do it the same way. What's that? Uh, All of them have jobs with the city, uh, sometimes two jobs with the city, maybe a police officer and a teacher, maybe a firefighter and 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 a teacher, and the person that works for the city who can retire after 20, 25 years and get a very generous pension, which is not something a lot of private sector jobs offer, They also, while they're working for the city, have a separate business, a landscaping business, a barber shop, a shoe repair shop, a whatever, a bread delivery route or a snow removal business. And they're not paying taxes on those businesses. Those are or a bagel store. By and large, those are cash businesses and they are not paying the proper amount in income taxes on the money they're bringing in for those businesses. So that is why I've oh, I always found the idea of a national sales tax somewhat uh, appealing because you take an illegal immigrant, right? You hire an illegal immigrant as a day laborer to work on your lawn or do some work at your house, whatever the case may be. You give him a, a hundred bucks, two hundred bucks for the day. And he's not paying taxes on that. And neither are you. You're not paying payroll taxes. He's not taking anything out. So, Take a drug dealer that's selling uh, selling opioids on the street corner. You think he's paying taxes on that? I assure you he's not. So that's why the idea of a national sales tax is so attractive because while those guys, the guy with the bagel store, the guy with the landscaping business, the guy with the shoe repair shop, while they're not paying taxes and neither is the drug dealer or the illegal immigrant – when they go to buy something, they do have to pay sales tax. Now, that's where um, the competitive tax plan comes in. And about uh, seven years ago, I had the opportunity to talk with Michael Greats. If I was ever president, I would appoint this man as commissioner of the IRS. I, I think he's a Republican, but he might be an independent. I don't know. He is um, a professor of law at Columbia, and he has written so many books on the tax code, what's wrong with it, what's right with it. He's a professor at Yale, or at least a lecturer at Yale as well. 
And he is brilliant when it comes to taxes. He invented something called the competitive tax plan. And I'll I'll let him explain it, and then I'll do my best to fill in the blanks. His tax plan, it's called the competitive tax plan. It features a much lower income tax rate and a value-added tax. Here's Michael Grates talking with me about his plan. Can you give us the broad strokes of your of your plan and exactly explain, because we've never had one in this country, what is a value-added tax? Well, a value-added tax is simply a, a national sales tax, but it's collected from wholesalers and from manufacturers instead of just from retailers, uh, which is, is like, a, it's like a sales tax with the tax withheld at earlier uh, stages of production. And uh, it's being used in 160 countries. I don't think any of your listeners can quickly name 160 countries, as smart as they might be. Um, it's used uh, all, over the, all over the world. The U.S. is the only uh, large country not to have it. And uh, um, and it has proved to be a very effective tax, and it uh, operates very much like a national sales tax. So what's uh, the difference exactly between a VAT or a value-added tax and a national sales tax? Well, the main difference is just how it's collected. That is, it's collected at different stages of production. I mean, the other thing about it is usually, uh, if you think about a sales state sales tax, there are all sorts of exemptions, and it doesn't apply to sales of services and so forth. So the 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 value added tax or or properly constructed national sales tax like the one trafficking was talking about would apply to sales of goods and sales of services so that's kind of his plan the competitive tax plan which would combine much lower income tax rates so there's much less incentive to create tax evasion with a value-added tax. So it would impose a 10% VAT, value-added taxes, and significantly reduce personal income taxes and corporate income taxes. Essentially, the, the, the VAT would generate enough revenue to exclude families earning less than $100,000 of annual income from having to pay income taxes or file tax returns. Uh, I think it is terrific. I think it is the best of the national sales tax ideas, the best of the income tax ideas. Look into it, the competitive tax plan. I don't know that there's a proposal for it in Congress now, but I'm telling you, if I'm ever president, this is priority number one. Give, let me hear your proposal for tax reform. What is it? 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Greg is in Connecticut. Hello, Greg. Yes. Uh, good morning. Morning. I think we're taxing some of the wrong people. I'll give you a very firm example. Every uh, election cycle, we have a rolling cocktail party with candidates vying for the presidency, the House of Representatives, the Senate, etc. Now, I'll give you an example. If these people had to pay 50% tax on the campaign contributions, they would be a lot more selective with our tax dollars and how they spend them every year. Mm, mm. I, I proposed this on uh, another radio show a couple of years ago with Senator Markey in Massachusetts, and the monitor of the show asked him flat out, because I asked him as a yes or no question, would he agree to this? Of course he danced around the question. I would like to hear from some politicians out there what they think of this, because 
They've been getting away with murder for years with collecting huge amounts of money and campaign contributions. They're not really spent that much on the campaign itself, but I think it's spent a lot of partying, chasing things around the nation. Right, Greg. This but would cut down the campaign time, and I think that that tax collected should go straight to prop up Social Security, Medicaid, and Medicare. Greg, I like um, I like the conceit of the idea, and I like the sort of motivation behind it. And believe me, I would love to shrink the uh, never-ending campaign cycle like they have in, in uh, Canada or Great Britain, which is a much more tolerable, you know, f- uh, six to eight weeks, which is uh, much better than what we have here, which is just a never-ending campaign. So I like the idea, and I like the purpose. But here's what I wonder, though. You know, when, depending on what your office you're running for, but let's say U.S. Senate, Congress, or President, when you when you run for office and you ask for campaign contributions, either from individuals or from special interests or both, let's say your plan was implemented and that they had to then pay taxes on the campaign contributions. The money that they're paying in taxes is just other people's money. It's money that they've raised from donors. It's not coming out of the candidate's pocket. No, it's not, but I think it could go right into the coffers of the United States government where it's most needed. Yeah, I, I tell you, it is interesting. I'll, um, I'll, I'll, do, I'll do some more homework on this. I have to admit, I've never heard this before. I think it's very creative, and uh, I, think, um, I think it merits further— I'm looking further... for the bravest man in Congress that would step up and propose this as a bill. Let's yeah. see if anybody out there has the guts to do it. Hey, Greg, uh, I like the out-of-the-box thinking. That's for sure. 800-848-9222. What's your tax solution? Tell me. George is in Manhattan. Hello, George. Hi there. Frank, uh, for years and years, Bob Grant used to talk about this uh, sales tax situation. He was the, the, what, the what tax Here's situation? What I think should happen. Wait, wait, Here's George, slow down. Slow happen. down, George, George. So, okay. again, you speak quickly, and you, you have a little bit of a muffled phone well, and a I'm little bit of an I'm afraid I might get suddenly cut off. All right. Well, no, but if, okay. you, if, you make, if you speak clearly and speak slowly, then, and oh, people can okay. understand Very you, then good. no one's going to cut you. you off. Now, George, um, Bob Grant for years used to talk about the what tax situation? He, he was in favor of uh, each and every individual simply paying uh, 17% tax, sales tax only, and that's it. But my view is somewhat different. I think it should be about 20% sales tax every time the canary paying upon purchasing something, right? Whatever it is. However, those who earn over $200,000, maybe 300000 you know, they will uh, separately, in addition, file taxes. That way, IRS work would be diminished by 60, 70, 80 percent. Well, it sounds like what your proposal is, is very similar to Michael Great's um, with the the competitive tax plan. I mean, his rate is not 200,000. It's 100,000 at which rate you'd start to uh, pay income tax. But it's very similar. The hallmarks of it are very similar. The reason a straight consumption tax or national sales tax doesn't work is for a few reasons. One, uh, I mean, think about it. Uh, right now, you know, there's no tax on food. There's no tax on medicine and something like the fair tax, which is the national sales tax program that has gotten the most attention. That would have you pay a tax on food and medicine. I mean, are you really going to do that? Are you really going to tell a family of four that's barely making ends meet? Sorry, 
you have to pay a uh, the same tax on your Tylenol or your baby aspirin or your Dimetap that the millionaire living around the corner from you has to pay. It's just it doesn't, and also it still doesn't bring uh, in, in enough revenue. Additionally, it causes government spending to go up because the only way it comes close to revenue neutrality is if the government is also paying taxes on its purchases. I mean, it just it just makes no sense when you actually look at the numbers. The idea makes sense, but the details don't. That's why this competitive tax plan with a value-added tax is a is a far better solution. Let me tell you what's coming up. Very excited. There is a cadre of presidential candidates that wants to bomb Mexican drug cartels. And a lot of people listen and think, yeah, I want to bomb Mexico. Why not? Well, it turns out some people think that might not be the best way of uh, stopping the drug epidemic in that country. And we're going to talk with one of them. He's a very bright guy uh, by the name of Dr. Jeffrey Singer. He's also a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. We're going to talk to him in a moment. Let me squeeze in one or two more calls on the tax front. Uh, Tony in New Jersey, hello. Hi, Frank. So I have an idea that I think works for me, so it might work for people. I'm a monthly person, so I would like to pay a monthly income tax, which is based on um, an actual amount, maybe by the prior month. I do it myself, and I would give everyone a reduction for paying throughout the year as opposed to paying at the end of the year. So maybe instead of paying, maybe you would get like a 75% reduction, a 50% reduction, whatever I could do, I would reduce everyone's taxes if they paid monthly. But but Tony, right now, I'm getting taxes withheld from my paycheck every two weeks. So I'm doing better than paying monthly. I'm paying taxes every two weeks. Well, the key is if you're paying the right amount and withholding the right amount, you won't owe anything, right? You know, when well, yeah, I mean that's uh, that that's uh, that's true. I mean, but sometimes you're lucky enough and you get some money back, a little bit of money back. But okay, um, a lot of people have proposed ending tax withholding um, so that people have a much better idea of what they're actually paying in the federal government to the federal government to the state government if they had to write a uh, a check themselves. Last comment on this, and then we'll get to. Um, our discussion of fentanyl and uh, bombing Mexico. Jacqueline is in Brooklyn. What's on your mind, Jacqueline? Yeah, good morning, Frank. Morning. Um, what I want to tell you is you had said um, the tax, the sales tax and, and the use tax on food and prescriptions and things of that nature, they tax food in North Carolina, and I'm sure they do so in other states as well. So it, it, it does work as far as contributing to the revenue uh, to the state. But my, I'm of the opinion that I think it should be some sort of a flat tax in, in conjunction with a use tax to supplement that flat tax. And I think that would be the fairest to everyone. Yeah. Um, so according to, um, you know, the uh, so th- they tax food at the grocery store in North Carolina. Yes, yes That is do, wild. Because, I had no idea. Yeah. I was shocked because I, I had family that used to live in North Carolina, and when we went to shop in the grocery store, 
I'm looking at the receipt and I says, wait a minute, this tax on food? That's incredible. I, I had yeah. no idea that that was the case. Thank you for yeah. educating me on that, uh, Jacqueline. Uh, and again, not to restate what I said about the flat tax, but I think if you look at the countries that have implemented it, it doesn't work. I think what Jacqueline's talking about, some sort of hybrid VAT and flat tax, that might work. All right. So we, need, I, we got at least one very creative idea, maybe two if you count George. All right. We're going to talk drugs and bombing Mexico straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. We have a problem with drugs in this country. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. And this problem has only gotten worse with two things. One, the pandemic and the lockdown and everything that came with it. The drug overdose problem in this country was significantly exacerbated. And two, the increased availability of fentanyl, which is significantly more powerful, significantly more lethal than heroin. And unfortunately, it's relatively cheap. So we are seeing in this country now more people dying of drug overdoses. And a lot of that is due to opioids, including fentanyl than died in the entire Vietnam War. More people dying each year from drug overdoses than died in the entire Vietnam War. Think about that. This is such a big problem that it is actually having a very real effect on American life expectancy. American life expectancy is going in the wrong direction. So what do we do about it? Well, a couple of uh, politicians have put forward a proposal which is getting a lot of traction, believe it or not. And initially, the proposal was treated as a scandal because President Trump's former acting Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, he basically did like every single other person in the Trump administration did, except for Jeff Sessions. Um, He basically did a tell-all book and said, you're not going to believe it. Donald Trump wanted to bomb Mexican drug cartels. And it was covered. Oh, my goodness, he did? And it was covered like it was a big deal, like a big faux pas, a big scandal. Well, now, you know who is not running away from this at all? Donald Trump. Donald Trump says, yeah, we want to do, we do want to go after these drug cartels in Mexico 
just like terrorist groups. When I am president, it will be the policy of the United States to take down the cartels, just as we took down ISIS and the ISIS caliphate, and just as, unlike the situation we're in today, we had a very, very strong border, the strongest border, in fact, in the history of our country. And drugs were at a low of 45 years. There's been nothing like what we did just two years ago. We will show no mercy on the cartels. Now, you are hearing not just presidential candidates, but leading Republican members of Congress all embrace this idea as well. Now, you can understand the appeal. If you take someone that has lost a loved one due to drugs, and I've lost friends and uh, and family members due to drugs, I understand very well the hurt that goes on there, the seeking of explanation, the wanting to blame someone other than the 19-year-old that's died. And you can understand the popular appeal of an idea like this. Now, my big question is, would it work? Someone that is something of an expert in this field is Dr. Jeffrey A. Singer. He is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and he works in the Department of Health Policy Studies there. He's also president emeritus and founder of Valley Surgical Clinics, the largest and oldest private surgical practice in Arizona. And he's been in private practice as a general surgeon for more than 35 years. So he's got great policy bona fides. He's got great medical bona fides. Dr. Singer, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Thank you. Good morning. So, Dr. Singer, uh, you're not in favor of bombing Mexico to stop drugs. How come? Well, first of all, it's not going to work, but it will turn our neighbor to the south that has a 2,000-mile border with us, a peaceful border, and one of our major trading partners is going to completely destabilize it. It'll probably turn it at the best into what is now going on in Iraq and Syria, but it might also turn it into Afghanistan, where eventually uh, the cartels run the country. And this is, I I really, it's very frustrating because I I can understand that the politicians are are frustrated, but it's like they're in a state of denial. They, they, They just don't get it. What's going on right now is just the latest manifestation of what we in the policy world call the iron law of prohibition. The economists call it the Alke and Allen effect. It's a technical term. But the iron law of prohibition basically says the harder the law enforcement the harder the drugs. The reason we have this fentanyl crisis right now is because of prohibition. So, for example, during alcohol prohibition days, they weren't smuggling in beer and wine. They were smuggling in the hard stuff, like whiskey. And the reason is, if you're going to take the risks, then you, you there's an incentive for you to come up with more potent forms of whatever it is that you're smuggling in. So you can smuggle it in in smaller sizes. It's easier to smuggle. And when you get it across the other side, you could subdivide into more units for sale. So um, the, the iron law of prohibition is, for example, why uh, when prescription pain pills, when, when, when the government for basically pressed doctors to, to cut down on prescription pain pill prescribing, that meant there were fewer pills for what the law enforcement calls diversion into the black market where non-medical recreational users were using them. Uh, of course, at the same time, patients who really needed the pain medicine or suffering and getting cut off from pain medicine. But but when that became less available, the black market just filled the void first with heroin. And then uh, starting around 2012, fentanyl, which is about 50 times the strength of heroin, began getting mixed in 
by the cartels to to boost the strength of fentanyl so it could be smuggled in in smaller and smaller sizes and then sold into more units for sale and then uh gradually by about 2016 fentanyl became the predominant cause of overdose deaths among all opioid related overdose deaths and then it really got accelerated during the pandemic because um, with border closures and all sorts of supply train, chain uh, issues that developed during the pandemic, you know, in order to make uh, heroin, first you got to grow the opium poppy, and you got to usually transport that across borders, and then you need to to process it. There's a chemical called acetic anhydride, which is an industrial chemical. But there was a supply chain issue with that, so quickly the cartels quickly discovered that you know we don't need to go through all that trouble. We could synthesize fentanyl just like we synthesize meth in labs because the fundamental ingredient piperidine is a very pre- a, abundant chemical it's used for for dozens and dozens of pharmaceuticals so gradually fentanyl basically was switched out heroin was switched out for fentanyl and now that the supply chain issues have disappeared the cartels learned you know this is much more cost effective uh, it's much more potent in addition to that the the iron law is still at work so now we're hearing you probably heard about this recently on the news about trank so recently the cartels figured out that the ordinary tranquilizer called xylazine and added to the fentanyl which makes it even more potent again that's the iron law prohibition so that again they can smuggle it in smaller sizes the problem is that the that the uh, xylazine potentiates makes more powerful the fentanyl but it's not an opioid so when people overdose on it the antidote naloxone doesn't work in addition to that it if it when when people inject with it if it gets outside the blood vessel it tends to cause tissue necrosis and people get terrible ulcers that become infected and there have been cases where people have had to have emergency amputations they were so badly infected and not, not only that there's another one i'm giving your listeners Another drug to keep an eye out for. There's a there's a category of synthetic opioids called nitazines. They were developed actually in the 1950s by Siba Geigy, but they never were brought to market. They're about 20 times the strength of fentanyl. We started seeing that appear in 2019 in Europe and in the United States. And just this past September, the Tennessee Department of Health uh, announced that nitazine was found in overdose deaths toxicology studies four times it quadrupled the amount of nitazine found over the last two years now most labs are not testing for nitazine because it's not on their radar screen the users call it iso because the actual drug is isotonitazine so the slang term is iso so uh well well our lawmakers are busy trying to to deal with the fentanyl crisis in a couple of years we're going to be talking Mm -hmm. about the iso crisis and the trank crisis we're already talking about the trank crisis and this is the iron law in action. So the more they try to clamp down, the more they're actually promoting, the, the, they're incentivizing the cartels to come up with even more potent forms of their drugs. So unless they wise up, they're only going to make this worse. It's, it's a vicious cycle. They're making it worse and worse and worse. And in the process, they'll, they'll actually destabilize our, our neighbor to the south and, and turn, turn Mexico into a basket case. When we tried to do this in Peru and Colombia back in, in the early 2000s, it was called Plan Colombia. We, we tried to get rid of the cocaine trade from Peru and Colombia. It just moved up north. It, trying to, to, to prosecute prohibition is like trying to, when you push in a balloon on one end, it comes out on the other end. So I have argued that as long as they keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result, 
that's what you know has been called the definition of insanity. Mm. Oh, you, you so, said uh, you said a great deal. Uh, so let me yeah. let me follow up on a, on a few different aspects of it because I think sure. it's uh, very interesting. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Doctor uh, Jeffrey Singer, who is a practicing physician and also a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Now. Um, Understanding what you said about prohibition and how uh, a greater law enforcement uh, penalty means that uh, they will bring in harder and harder drugs. And you used the uh, perfect example of alcohol prohibition and the folks that would take the risk in order to bring in harder booze than just beer and wine. If we were to go with what Donald Trump says or Lindsey Graham says – and um, bomb the facilities that manufacture the drugs that are coming in this country uh, for, you know, right now, which now is fentanyl, understanding in the future that it's likely to be Trank and some of the other things that you alluded to. Uh, why would that be ineffective? Wouldn't it at the very least reduce the supply of fentanyl and other drugs and drive up the cost for American consumers? No, it's actually going to make uh, it's going to make get fentanyl get replaced by something even more potent and easier to make. And the cartels right away, they'll just right they'll away. just move out. El- yeah, yeah, okay. of course, there's an incentive and they'll just move elsewhere. You're not going to get rid of it if they have to leave Mexico They'll go to someplace else They'll go to the Caribbean. They'll go to uh, other places offshore. That's what happened when we try to get rid of it in South America. Maybe they'll move back to right. South America. That's happened also. All right. Now, um. What the understanding that this drug crisis is a problem in this country and the uh, the the plan to bomb the cartels out of existence might not be effective. What would work? Are we talking about full out drug legalization of everything? Well, that's the only way you're really going to make the black market less dangerous. I mean, that's what we took us 13 years to figure out from 1920 to 1933 that alcohol prohibition was leading to deaths because there's a lot of adulterated alcohol, as you know, it had, there was wood alcohol. It was leading to crime wave. It was making, you know, the, the, the 1930s and 20s versions of the cartels were the, were the, you know, the gangs running, owning Chicago and other cities and going to war with the FBI. So it, they, it took them 13 years to figure out this is a bad idea. And they legalized, at least nationally, federally, they, they legalized it. They left it up to the states. There are still a couple of dry counties still in this country, but they left it up to the states and it's legal and regulated. So when I go into my drug dealer, which usually my drug dealer of choice is total wine. And when I go mm-hmm. in there and I want to buy a bottle of bourbon, which is my drink of choice. Same. Um, and it says 45% alcohol on there. It never even enters my mind that maybe they're lying to me and it's got fentanyl in it or it's, it's uh, 80% alcohol. Because it's legal and regulated and there's recourse, not just not just, you know, civil recourse and tort laws, but there's there's regulation. So that's the ideal solution. I know it's hard to get people to buy into this because for about 100 years, we basically been telling people if you want to drink alcohol, that's fine. But if you want to use any of these drugs to alter your consciousness, we're going to put you in a cage. No, it's totally it's totally uh, schizophrenic, which I appreciate. And look, um, I I drink alcohol. The four hours that I'm doing this radio show are the most sober uh, four hours of my day. So I'm not suggesting they bring back prohibition. But Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly two million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. 
In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. People that are in favor of uh, drug prohibition, they do point to the successes of alcohol prohibition. They'll point to the fact that while um, there were a lot of problems, alcohol consumption did decline dramatically during prohibition. And with the decline in alcohol consumption, we saw a decline in cirrhosis death rates. We saw a decline in admissions to state mental hospitals. We saw a decline in arrests for public drunkenness and disorderly conduct. Uh, Doesn't that show that prohibition does lead to, if not no consumption, less consumption. Well, it it was also causing a tremendous amount of violent crime, corruption, and people were dying when they were using adulterated alcohol. And so um, I don't think there's a serious person today who would say it's time to bring back alcohol prohibition. No, least of all me. Well, when, when prohibition ended, at first consumption went up and then it sort of leveled off. But the other thing that happens when it's legal is you have harm reduction. So, for example... Um, and, and by the way, we have laws. Uh, adults only could purchase these products when I, I, you know, you get carded, which would happen when things are legal. Um, you can't drive under the influence, uh, all sorts of rules like that. But also when people want to drink a lot, they have a designated driver, which is a form of harm reduction. And we accept the fact that the, while most people use alcohol in moderation and, and, and safely, and usually not all the time, but in rec- recreationally, uh, there are some people who develop a problem with it. They have a substance use disorder because they have an unhealthy relationship with it. And we treat that as a, as a health problem, not as a moral failing. And we treat these people with compassion and the way we should. Now, if we legalized all drugs, the same thing would happen. Sure, some people, there might be a slight increase in, in drug use, but first of all, it'll be a whole lot safer. So it'll be, when you right. buy you would, something, you it's going to be what you say it is. Uh, that's uh, that's uh, cut with uh, some all sorts of things that might be harmful right. to someone. You'd actually know what you're purchasing. But also we could put our, we, and we, whether it's legal or if it remains illegal, we should, if you want to stop people from dying from drug overdoses, we should put our efforts into what's called harm reduction which is something that kind of comes naturally to a physician because in developed countries like the United States, that's most of what doctors do. So for example, when we have people who are overweight and have high blood pressure and borderline diabetes and high cholesterol, and we know if we just got them to change their, their diet and exercise habits, we can get them healthy. But for whatever reason, either they don't want to, or they enjoy overeating or, and they don't like exercise or whatever, we realize that we can't get them to, to change. So when we prescribe a, a, a statin drug to lower their cholesterol and a blood pressure pill and maybe metformin to get their blood sugar under control, we're practicing harm reduction. We're not necessarily endor- endorsing their lifestyle choices. We're saying, well, let me do what I can to make it so that you're, you're doing less harm to yourself. So whether we legalize drugs or we continue the same, that's the route to getting less overdose deaths. So for example, uh, making it easier for people to get the overdose antidote naloxone, which now is going to become over-the-counter, so that should really help. Um, we have uh, syringe services programs, so people can hand out clean syringes and needles so they're not spreading HIV and hepatitis. But in, an, in another uh, way, 
um, and I just had a paper come out on this a little over a month ago. Uh, there's uh, something called overdose prevention centers. Uh, they also had been called safe consumption sites. Now, in this country, they're federally illegal and people scoff at it. But there are now 147 government sanctioned overdose prevention centers in 16 countries and 91 locations since 1986. The first one started in Switzerland in 1986. There are 14 now in Switzerland, 25 in Germany, 38 in Canada. They're in Australia, they're in Mexico, and there are two in New York City that were sanctioned, as you know, by the city of New York. Right. And and so far, the, the Justice Department hasn't moved in. And uh, we, I had, uh, I spoke to the, the the woman who set that up, Kaylin C, and she said, in within just one year, but in twenty in twenty twenty two. They reversed 750 overdose deaths. That's 700 people. Dr. Singer, you, you're going to have dead. to come back uh, soon because uh, we're out of time, but we're just uh, scratching the surface in terms of in terms of issues that I want to cover with you. Thank you for the time this morning. Let's talk again soon. Thank you. It was great. Uh, Dr. Jeffrey Singer, you can learn more about him at uh, his Twitter handle is Dr. Dr. The number four Liberty. And uh, I've just tagged him on my Twitter at Frank Morano. Calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. The Jonas Brothers Waffle House. Uh, you can give me a call, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Let me get to your calls in a minute. I don't want to rush you through anything. Um, you know, we're only going to have about a 45 seconds here, so I don't want to rush you through your call before the top of the hour, so we'll just take it at the top of the hour. In terms of uh, the rest of the week, got some good stuff coming up uh, tomorrow. And um, I, Dr. Sky is going to be here tomorrow. And then on, I'm not going to be here on Friday. Curtis is going to be here on Friday. So let me know what you want to do. We can either just skip denunciations and ask Frank anything this week, which are Friday hallmarks, or we can do what we did two weeks ago when I had to be off on a Friday and move them to Thursday. Uh, so if you want to email me uh, or call in or tweet me with your suggestion, you can certainly do so. 800-848-9222. I have to go to Atlanta for a bachelor party. I have to tell you, I didn't even want to have a bachelor party when I got married because I didn't want to inconvenience anyone. But, I mean, that's really inconvenient. To go to another city, go to Atlanta, make all your friends go. I mean, I'm sure it'll be a good time, but still. All right, until next hour, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
I have always been a huge fan of Morgan Freeman. I don't think there is a better actor on the planet than Morgan Freeman. And it's funny, I was trying to think of what my five favorite Morgan Freeman films were. And look, it's easy to pick my favorite one because it's got to be it's got to be the Shawshank Redemption. But after that, I mean, it's impossible to pick. I mean, lucky number Slevin with he and Ben Kingsley and Bruce Willis. I love that picture. Invictus. Uh, another great Clint Eastwood movie, by the way. I, I n- neglected to mention that when we were talking about Clint Eastwood the other day, where he plays Nelson Mandela. He's great in that. Million Dollar Baby. He's phenomenal in that. Unforgiven. Driving Miss Daisy. Even even traditional action movies, like the Batman movies that he's in, he's great in that. Red, another Bruce Willis movie, he's great. Bruce Almighty, where he plays God. Deep Impact, where he plays the president. I mean, you think about it. Who else could pull off playing the president and God and Nelson Mandela and a chauffeur and a prisoner? Who else could do that? Only Morgan Freeman. And uh, so I followed Morgan Freeman for years. I think he is a fascinating guy, not just a great actor, but a, a brilliant man. I mean, he's a guy that could... I think he could read the phone book and it would be interesting. I mean, you take the 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 most boring subject in the world and Morgan Freeman finds a way to make it interesting. I mean, I'm trying to think, what is the most boring subject in the world? You know what always gets mentioned as the um as the most boring subject in the world is uh grass growing. You could even make grass growing interesting if Morgan Freeman was describing it. I mean, it would be really something. It would be like, as the sun rises over the horizon, the blades of grass begin to stir, each one reaching up to the sky with a quiet determination. With the gentle touch of morning dew, they start to awaken, stretching towards the light with a graceful ease. Slowly but surely, but grass begins to grow, its emerald hues shimmering in the sunlight. Each blade is unique, yet they work together in perfect harmony, swaying gently in the breeze, like a choreographed dance. As the day progresses, the grass continues to grow, its roots digging deeper into the earth below. With every passing moment, it becomes stronger more resilient and more beautiful. And so it goes day after day, season after season. The grass grows with a quiet but unyielding determination, a testament to the beauty and resilience of nature itself. Who else but Morgan Freeman could make something so boring sound so beautiful? So I was very interested in this uh, interview that he did with the London newspaper, the, uh, the Sunday Times. It's a U.K. newspaper, but I believe they're based in London. And he explained in this interview, he talked about race. And I love that he's willing to talk about race 
in a way that's not blaming all white people for all the world's problems. And he explained why he objects to the term African-American. And a lot of my friends that are black also object to the term African-American, which is why I don't generally say it. If I'm with someone and they like that term for themselves, then maybe I'll use it in a pinch. But I don't like to refer to people uh, who are African-American, um, who, who are black as African-American for two reasons. You know who's African-American? Elon Musk. So if we're using that to determine, to describe someone that's black, it really becomes very inaccurate because Elon Musk is actually from Africa. So are we really saying that Elon Musk is African-American and so is so is O.J. Simpson, who's never been to Africa? You see what I'm saying? It's completely ridiculous. Also, um, what if you're from Jamaica? Does that make you any less black? Of course not. But it does make you not African. So anyway, Morgan Freeman got into this with the reporter, and he explained why he objects to this term African-American and why it's an insult to limit the teaching of black history to just one month. This began uh, when the reporter asked Freeman about an interview that he had given Back in 2005, and I played this interview before, and I thought he was right on the money at the time. This was for 60 Minutes, an interview that he did with CBS's Mike Wallace about how not talking about race might help end racism. Who says that? I do. I do. Not everything in life is a racial issue. Morgan Freeman in 2005 talking with Mike Wallace. Black History Month, you find... Ridiculous. Why? You're going to relegate my history to a month? Oh, come on. What do you do with yours? Which month is white history month? Well, well, come on. Tell me. uh, I'm Jewish. Okay. Which month is Jewish history month? Uh, There isn't one. Oh. Oh. Why not? Do you want one? No, no. No. I, 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 I don't either. I don't want a Black History Month. Black history is American history. How are we going to get rid of racism? Stop talking about it. I'm going to stop calling you a white man. Yeah. And I'm going to ask you to stop calling me a black man. I think that's wonderful. So anyway, he, he goes on in this interview to say two things I can say publicly that I do not like. Black History Month is an insult. You're going to relegate my history to a month. Also, African American is an insult. I don't subscribe to that title. Black people have had different titles all the way back to the N-word. And I do not know how these things get such a grip, but everyone uses African American. What does it really mean? And he adds, most black people in this part of the world are, what this is Morgan Freeman saying this, not me, mongrels. And you say Africa as if it's a country when it's a continent like Europe. So when the interviewer, Jonathan Dean, mentioned fellow actor Denzel Washington and his statement, I'm very proud to be black, but black is not all I am. Washington echoed those those sentiments. Yes, exactly. I'm in total agreement, Morgan Freeman shared. You can't define me that way. He also noted he's so very envious of Denzel's career because he's doing what I wanted to do. 
Freeman uh, is currently starring in A Good Person, and he went on to discuss how things have changed since he first started acting in the 60s. So I thought um, I thought it was interesting, but he said he believes the industry has become increasingly inclusive, noting that for a long time, roles for black actors were typically comedic. When I was growing up, there was no me in the movies, he shared. The change is that all people are involved now. Everyone, LGBTQ, Asians, black, white, interracial marriages, interracial relationships, all represented. You see them all on screen now, and that's a huge jump. He also mused on whether he might have ended, where he might have ended up if he hadn't found success in Hollywood. And he said, people ask, what would you be doing if you didn't make it? I don't know, driving a limo, but I would be in community theater. I would be acting, but along with guts, it also takes luck. He's so right about that. You need courage and serious luck. I credit my career with both. Well said. And it just makes me like him even more. Curious what you think of um, of these comments by Morgan Freeman. 800-848-9222. Those of you that are holding, uh, Marianne, Norm, Jim, Robert, Melvin, I'll get to you. Uh, I also want to raise this with you. You know, in 15 minutes, we were supposed to talk with Richard C. Hoagland who is a very accomplished guy, very accomplished science writer. He hosts a podcast called The Other Side of Midnight, and he I'd been trying to get him on the show for a while. We had a, a listener who I think knows him and w- was kind enough to reach out to him for us. And um, we had arrangements for him to come on last week. But there was some confusion on the time zone because I don't know where he lives, and I said it was 228. Eastern, which would be 1120 your time. So we called him at 220 Eastern, which was not 1120 his time. It was 1220 his time. He informed us that he was now busy and couldn't do it. Now, um, I apologized for the confusion on the time. And I asked if we could schedule something else. And he said, just send me an email reminder as we get closer. And But I'm all set here. See you next Tuesday in the wee hours in the morning. And he was scheduled to come on in the next few minutes. And then I received this email message right before the show. Frank, unfortunately, I will not be able to do tomorrow morning's WABC interview. Tuesday at 2.20 in the morning, um, Eastern Daylight Time, April 18th. I am subjected to severe migraine attacks, and I'm suffering one now. Please let's be in touch regarding rescheduling for another day. Thanks, Richard C. Hoagland. Now, (laughs) fool me once, shame on me, you. Fool me twice, shame on me, right? Fool me three times, as George W. Bush would say. You can't fool me again, right? (laughs) But uh, now here's my question. Uh, Maybe he did have a migraine. My wife gets migraines from time to time. So either that or or she'll do anything to avoid going to bed with me, one of the two. So I know that migraines are a real thing. Maybe he did have one. But this is now the second time... We have tried to have him on the show, and we had him confirmed, and it just didn't work out. So my question for you is, should we 
just kind of quit while we're behind? Should we not try this again? Or should we go through this again week after week and see what next week's excuse is? I had a friend, uh, he was a city councilman, and there was a woman that worked in his office. And these are all friends of mine, so I'll refrain from the names. But um, this woman always had an excuse of why she needed a day off. And their philosophy in that office was, okay, if you're sick and you need a day off, you don't have to bring a doctor's note. I mean, Alex Barnard would have loved this office. He'd be off every every week. So he would joke with me. He would say, you know, her name is not Shirley, but Shirley's off again. Uh, What's today's excuse? High blood pressure? Okay. Uh, What's next week's excuse? Uh, Allergic reaction to pollen? I just see her with a chart in her house crossing off excuse after excuse. So week one was the time differential. Week two is now a migraine. What could ne- week ne- what could next week be? So do you think we should invite him back again or, or just kind of move on? What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Matt Blaze, do you care to offer a vote here? Well, I... Uh... I think uh, I think we should just move on. Well, I am kind of interested to hear if he does come on, and if he doesn't, what the excuse yeah, will be. Yeah, I am too, actually. So, so that, we'll, maybe we'll try again for, yeah. for comedic purposes. What do you think, Kenneth? What's your vote? Yeah, I'm on board with that. Okay, I'd, I'd, all like, right, okay. I'd like to see what he comes up right. with this time. We'll see what Alex says uh, as well, because I am uh, somewhat curious uh, – Somewhat curious as well. All right, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Let me uh, say hello to Mark in Baltimore. Hello, Mark. Hi, thanks for taking the phone call. Uh, On Mr. Hoagland, uh, an incredible individual. He's taken a lot of knocks throughout his career. Everyone that knows anything about him knows he was uh, the late, great Walter Cronkite's uh, science advisor for quite a few years. A man of great repute. He's written incredible books. He's faced a lot of criticism. And despite that, uh, he's been invited to many, many overnight shows, shows I don't have to mention. And and over the years, you know, I'm not going to blame him over the years he's become difficult to work with so oh, you he need has. to take that for wait wait, wait yeah wait, you wait. can take that for what it's worth oh, okay uh i didn't i didn't know that okay well thank you for letting me know that mark of course all right appreciate that thank you 800-848-9222 eric is in manhattan hello eric hey frank about the term african american it grates on me like um are you are you I, black I, no okay. no my mother my mother um, started using it, and but she she lived through the civil rights movement. It's, I, I, it's not condescending, but she should know better. I I always say, listen, black is beautiful. African American is a, a racist term. Well, to me, I say it's asterisk. It's like saying asterisk American. Well, then, I, I'll be honest with you, Eric. <laughs> I feel that way about any hyphenated American term. If you notice, with myself, yes, yes, I really don't yes. refer to myself as Italian American. <laughs> right, I, I, I just say <laughs> I'm American. Yeah, exactly. It just came up last night. I'm American. That's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So thank you, Eric. <laughs> uh, appreciate it. Yeah, I I know I don't like hyphenated Americanism. I like being American. And um, you know, Theodore Roosevelt gave a wonderful speech on hyphenated Americanism on Columbus Day, and what he said essentially 
was th- those were his least favorite people. It, it were people that w- called themselves. He said there was no room in this country for hyphenated Americans. That was his quote. And he said, I'm not talking about naturalized Americans, but a hyphenated American is no American at all. And I kind of I kind of always appreciated that speech. I really did. 800-848-9222. Norm is in Florida. Hello, Norm. Hey, how you doing? I, I was advised to have uh, Dr. Jeff Singer on. I was uh, listening to him. I wanted to know about the uh, legalization of uh, of heroin and uh, his uh, his view on which states would we which states uh, simply have to take the same way they took the marijuana that that we began to use uh, the heroin medical the medically prescribed uh, uh, diamorphine uh, like they do in Canada and those sort of things, but. Uh, I believe that he's not there anymore, but that's what a question I had to ask to to Dr. Singer. Yeah, uh, so I'm sorry. Good. I'm sorry we didn't get to you, Norm. Uh, do you have a yes. uh, Do you have a comment on uh, w- uh, whether or what he was suggesting that we should legalize all hard drugs? Well, yeah, I think that uh, what he's saying is is that uh, in terms of the harm reduction, that these are are medica- these are, are products that uh, if, when you uh, legalize them, one thing you do is you use it for for treatment of right. that that condition, those disease conditions. And right. Stuff. Well, well, th- uh, and and thank you, Norm. Currently, fentanyl is legal for treatment of uh, certain serious medical conditions, but that still is not stopping it from being abused. You know, I just uh, I hear what he's saying intellectually. I do. But I just, I still have a little bit of a hard time with legalizing everything. Now, maybe I I can get there, but it's just a tough thing for me to envision a 22-year-old being able to go to Dwayne Reed and buy heroin. It's just, or or fentanyl. It's just very difficult to, for me to imagine. And... Maybe that's the own limits of my imagination. Maybe that's what we need to do. I, I don't know, because clearly what we're doing is not working. But I'm not sure if bombing Mexico is the answer. I'm also not sure if legalizing everything is, is the answer. I want to do as uh, much homework on this, like we did with the tax code, right? Uh, I have looked at the tax code in just about every Western country in the world, and even some non-Western countries. And I've come to the conclusion of what I think would work well for America. And I'd like to go on a similar global quest on the drug problem. Some people point to Iceland as having a a drug problem that they got a hold of. You know, Pat Buchanan in his book, I think it was uh, Suicide of a Superpower. He says, um, and this is from memory, I don't remember exactly. But he said the only way we're going to deal with this drug problem in America is either the solution of Mao or the solution of Milton. Now, in Mao's communist China, they basically will give you the death penalty if you're a drug dealer. And I think under Mao, maybe even if you were a drug user. So you know what happened? Nobody did drugs. 
because they didn't want to get the death penalty. Nobody sold drugs because they didn't want to get the death penalty. Donald Trump has actually cited that lately. In the case of Milton Friedman, Milton Friedman, the economist, he favored drug legalization. And he said it's got to be one of those two because what we're doing now is just not working. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Marianne is in Queens. Hello, Marianne. Good morning, Frank. Uh, Well, I was listening to your guest. Uh, I respect him, but the cartels are waging a war against United States and Latin America countries. They held Mexico and the government hostage, and those Latin American countries as well. The same border that bring two or three millions, last year was five million from 147 countries from all over the world. The same border that got them here is the one that is bringing the drug addiction, the crime, and the corruption in those countries. We don't have the resources to fight that. And the reason why most of these people that came the last time is running away away from the crime that those countries have been Mm -hmm. uh, made possible because of those cartels. And let me tell you, if the United States are serious in putting an end to the cartels, killing people in the United States and all over America and the world, maybe, drastic measures should be taken. The same border that are killing people here are killing people in those countries. And I don't believe that going the way that he spoke about alcohol, it took many years. And guess what? Alcohol is one of the main reasons why there are so many marriages destroyed. Yeah, well, women and yeah, children I, I, tried, I, I tried to point that out, Marian. Thank you. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think um, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I really see both sides of this. I really do. 800-848-9222. All right, we're going to go through the mail next. If you want uh, your message read on the radio, you can email me. Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. That is Frank.M-O-R-A-N-O at WABCRadio.com. We'll go through the mail straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
Michael Jackson singing Beat It. All right. Get your messages to me now. Uh, Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. You can also send me a direct message if you want on Twitter at Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O, because it is time for... on Twitter via direct message. Please denounce <laughs> Please denounce Bruce Springsteen for being overrated. Love the fact that you didn't fall for his Charlotte act. What? Way too smart for that. Thank you. That's why I listen. Great show tonight. Well, Michael, that's why you listen? I I mean, a lot of people like Bruce Springsteen. Uh, I'm not denouncing someone for being overrated. No way. A lot of people love him. So uh, I uh, am not going along with that in the least. Uh, But on a similar note, someone else sent me an SMS text message. And if people don't include their name, I'm just not going to read their name. Go, Go to Lincoln Center and see an Italian opera. That might change your mind about live music. What? Huh. Uh, that's uh, very interesting. Okay. Uh, maybe maybe that's, uh, maybe that's the way to be. All right. Uh, let's see. What else did I have here? And I have, that was one of the direct message. I forgot to, uh, forgot to flag. All right. We will, um, I'll, I'll come back to that if we can, if I could find it. Um, yeah, I can't find it. All right. Um, okay. Uh, via email, we have, or no, actually via non-direct message, just Twitter. Sa- Sharon writes, an idea. Have the gentleman email you when he is available and ready to come on the show. You won't have to go through it a third time. Have him contact you an hour before he's ready to come on. I think you're probably being played. Very possible, Sharon. Very, very possible. But that's it's okay. Uh, I'm, I've always been guilty of being a little bit of a sucker. That's fine. Another person writes, and this is the person that helped me get a hold of um, Richard C. Hoagland to not be on the show. Uh, Subject, maybe that was a private email. How dare you, Frank? WTF. By the way, don't read my emails on air. RCH goes on other shows. You are being so rude. And then she finishes it with all the very best, which you got to appreciate. I love that. Uh, Joyce writes on the subject of Richard Hoagland, Frank, in my opinion, you are very fortunate because Richard C. Hoagland is an extremely boring guest who is on coast to coast all the time. And I always turn it off. You, you're better off not having him on. I, I would be in much a much better guest. Ha ha ha. <laughs> Joyce. All right. Thank you. Uh, Lawrence writes, Frank, bravo for being so courageous and unafraid to answer questions in the Ask Frank Anything segments. No other host anywhere would dare answer some such questions without practicing censorship. That is one of the three most popular segments which are unique to your show. The others are the 10 questions and, of course, 15 seconds of fame, which we really enjoy in that callers speak their mind without the hosts interrupting them. But a minimum... Of 15 seconds should be allowed unless the caller statement runs shorter. 
Thanks for your attention. And please do read on air or respond to me as you prefer. Another person writes, Frank, did you write that piece about grass that you just read? It was brilliant and fantastic. You're an amazing writer and broadcaster. Wow. Uh, Jim in Jackson Heights writes, a snippet of a conversation I heard between a seasoned tax attorney and a fresh out of law school associate. Seasoned partner. Don't look for it to make sense. Apparently, the partner had said something about a provision in a tax law and the associate had said, but that doesn't make sense. Think about it. People who get elected to legislatures um, at all levels, local, state and federal, are often bozos. And they are the ones who write tax laws and revisions to and revisions to them. Okay, the actual writing is done by legislative aides, but the office holders are the ones who vote on the bills. They pass a lot of garbage bills, and the chief executives, many of whom are also bozos, usually sign them. So don't look for them to make sense. The biggest challenge of a republic, finding good people to run for office. Keep up your great work. Jim in Jackson Heights. Thank you, Jim. Uh, Let's see here. Uh, Another person writes, Hi, Frank. You were a real trooper this morning. This is yesterday's program when the phones weren't working. I'm sure you were upset, uh, especially since you had another new station on board, but we listeners never would have known it. This just shows what a real professional you are. You continued on with seemingly good humor. And by the way, as it turns out, these kinds of loosey-goosey shows are some of your best. Thank you very much. Uh, this person writes, Janice writes, um, 4 a.m. hour is from yesterday. Ugh! You should listen to what you said. So you cannot pe- believe people drive after they drink. Just call an Uber. Have you done that in Manhattan after leaving work? Be honest. Or just drive home. You brag about your drinking. You are a functioning alcoholic. First of all, I don't brag about my drinking. I think Curtis does. Um, and I probably... I am- sober. I think uh, I probably exaggerate my drinking a little bit more. Uh, the truth is during the week, I don't think I really drink at all. Your I wife, have no idea what's going on. Your wife drives you everywhere because you're also a horrible driver and she knows it. Selfish parking habits, lots of tickets. One day you will wake up and realize that hopefully the karaoke club and how about the AC debacle you spoke about? By the way, that was two and a half years ago. I'm glad that it's still so fresh in your brain. Get real. Listen to that podcast. Very telling. Janice from Brooklyn. Uh, Thank you, Janice. All right. Um, Anthony writes, good morning, Frank. I enjoy your show and listen to your station most of the day. It's just my opinion, but I find having any music playing in the background while you're giving commendations very bold. Very distracting. It sounds like the music one would be subjected to while on hold on the phone. More importantly, at times, I focused more on the music than what you were saying. It was just loud enough to be annoying. Thanks, Anthony. Have a safe ride home, he adds. All right. This is very funny. This is an email from uh, James McGrath who was on the show yesterday. Um, This is after the interview, but I didn't see it until after the show. Thanks so much. Thoroughly enjoyed that. Funny story. When you said you were from WABC Radio and wanted to do an interview at 3.30 a.m., I assumed it was Australian Broadcasting Company. I've spoken to them before at around that time in the morning. I was really delighted when I realized it's WABC New York. I'm originally from Brooklyn. Thanks again for an enjoyable conversation. 
Now, I wondered about that wow. because this guy posted on his Facebook page, hey, any Australian listeners, tune in. And I'm wondering, why is he specifically calling out Australian listeners? I think that's a, a weird assumption to make. Mark writes, um, oh, actually, no, we'll, we'll, save, we'll save that, 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 um, that email. Uh, another, people wrote, your Spring, another person wrote, your Springsteen experience, great story. Karen writes, do not eat the sushi. Frank, when in doubt, throw it out. This is what I taught my children many years ago. I think you definitely should not eat the sushi. Better safe than sorry. I got to tell you, even though that tuna was looking a little purple, and I'm not joking about that. It was looking a little purple. I ate it, and it was delicious. Absolutely delicious. I'm glad I ate it. Feel no ill effects whatsoever. Um... Frank, the funniest comment is from Phil. Uh, Frank, the funniest comment I read online today, somebody said, I identify as invisible. When I was born, I was visible, but now I'm transparent. My pronouns are who and where. It's not bad. Not bad. Um, Mike writes, who would they choose? Hello, Frank. If you and the wife split, who would your mutual friends choose? You or your wife? Thank you, Mike out. I'd choose Cheryl, he writes. Um, well, I think except for a couple of friends that she had since college, all of our mutual friends would, would choose me. Even when this subject comes up and when we're at a party or something or at a bar and my friends that, that we've met will, will say, eh, Rachel gets me in the divorce, they'll then come over to me privately and say, I'm just joking. You know, that's not true. I'm going with you in the divorce. So what you say makes no sense. That's I mean, and Rachel would be the first to agree to that. I mean, if she were here. All right. Um, let's see here. Okay, this is an interesting email. This person writes. Um, he wrote this while Biden was speaking in Ireland. The president of the United States is currently delivering an address before the Irish Parliament. Fox News, a 24-hour news service, has chosen not to cover it live, opting instead to air a crime story, followed by U.S. drivers brace for Biden's EV push and lack of charging stations is a big hurdle for EV drivers. Yet when Biden trips on the stairs when boarding Air Force One or coughs during a speech, Fox News plays these insignificant moments on a loop. Do you think this helps the American electorate make informed decisions? As Ed Koch would say, I happen to believe it does not. And the same goes for your Newsmax. First of all, it's not my Newsmax. I have not appeared on Newsmax television in over three years. Okay, number one. Number two, um, yeah, I don't think that that's appropriate uh, to focus only on a person's gaffes and not on a substantive speech that they're making. Uh, but I think they go with what tracks and what where the ratings are, and I think there's a reason Fox is number one in the ratings. Does it help make people make informed decisions? Probably, uh, probably not. Probably not. All right, Ken writes, uh, I send emails instead of calling because my hearing is poor. Read more emails! My question is this. I know your love for the game of baseball, so any favorite baseball names... Any favorite baseball nicknames? My favorites are No Neck Williams from the White Sox and Sudden Sam McDowell from the Indians. And currently, Nasty Nestor Cortez is pretty good. Well, uh, I would guess 
the three that stand out in my um, maybe four. Look, you, we're all we're all a result of our environment, right? And I grew up mostly as a Met fan. Not mostly as a Met fan. I grew up rooting for the Mets. So all my favorite Met, my, my favorite nicknames are people that have to do with the Mets. So Doc Gooden for Dwight Gooden. I mean, people think that's his first name. That's how good of a nickname it is. I don't think there's a better nickname in baseball than Oil Can Boyd. Dizzy Dean and Daffy Dean uh, are two very good nicknames. You got to also have an appreciation for Hojo, Howard Johnson. So uh, those are mine. Doc Gooden, Hojo, Oil Can Boyd, Dizzy Dean, and Daffy Dean. Uh, No. All right. Lara writes, Frank I would greatly appreciate it if at least someone won the 10-question quiz about once or twice a month. Why not one pass or one error allowed in view of the time limit and the numerous questions that gradually get harder? Thanks for the show, Lara. Well, Lara, it's supposed to be difficult to win. That's why it's supposed to be special. We don't give everybody $1,000. And a guy almost won the other day. He got nine right. Um... Barb, I believe this is, writes, Pearl Harbor is not a national holiday, neither should September 11th be. Best remembrance of September 11th should be images of the twin beams of light. All right. Um, Rita in Reading, Pennsylvania, writes, Hi, Frank. I agree with your decision to attend your goddaughter's first Holy Communion party. As godfather, your role is to support her on her faith journey. Participation in her celebration of receiving the sacrament takes priority over any other activities. You made the right choice. I don't know what Matt Blaze was thinking. All right, Brandon writes on the subject of refrigerator magnets. Greetings, Frank. I received two magnets from you, which I appreciate. Thank you for that. I put one on my refrigerator and one on my car. Then I noticed two on my refrigerator the next day, blaming my son for taking the second off the car. He said he had not. But he had actually discovered that two magnets were stuck together. Realizing this, I checked my car magnet only to discover there were three stuck together. While I'm delighted to have received five magnets for the price of two, and don't want to ruin other winners from hitting the magnet lottery. I figured you might want to know so you can notify Jake or Doug in promotions. Well, uh, thank you, Brandon, for your honesty. Jake is no longer with us. I have indeed notified Doug. DT writes, uh, you are 100% correct. This is a gentleman from Ohio. You are 100% correct about the gross criminality of the Bush-Cheney war machine. Excellent show, as always. Thank you. Uh, um, uh, Pat Buchanan, the subject is from James. Dear Mr. Moreno, thank you for showing your true colors in your defense of Pat Buchanan. White power, brother. Thank you, James. Uh, This person writes, uh, I wish Bill Bradley could run against Biden in the primary. Well, he can. Joe, he can. Um, Marianne writes, Dear Frank, the Pope met with Biden and Pelosi last year concerning their abortion agenda and how since they're both Catholic, the Pope wanted to ban both from receiving communion. 
Pope gave them a pass from enforcing abortion in the United States. As a Catholic, why would the Pope support these abortion forces in politics? My priest preaches to stop abortion. He should talk to his boss and ask why. Uh, I explained to Marianne that uh, Pope Francis has commented on this, and he has previously urged bishops to really tread lightly on the issue of denying people the Eucharist, which Catholics consider the body and blood of Christ, and advise the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops against adopting a policy that would have denied communion to President Biden. On September 15th, for instance, 2021, the Pope was asked about the issue of bishops denying prohibition, uh, excuse me, denying pro-abortion politicians the right to participate in communion, and said he had never refused the Eucharist to anyone. So the Pope has never refused the Eucharist to anyone. He said, what should a shepherd do? Be a shepherd and not going around, not going around condemning or not condemning, the Pope said. Well, I, that's, the, that's the Pope. John writes, have you never heard of Jill Stein and the Green Party? Why do you ignore them? When you talk about third parties, actually, your foreign policy views are very similar to the Green Party. FYI, many people believe that the Jill Stein and Green Party took enough of votes away from Clinton to throw the election. JP, oh yeah, and Stein had dinner with Putin before the election, which you would possibly like. Well, I'm not ignoring Jill Stein and the Green Party. She did not run in 2020. And she is not running in 2024. So what would you like me to say about her? I like Jill Stein. I've interviewed Jill Stein before. I think she's interesting. Um, No. no. By the way, a lot of people send me emails saying, uh, send this to Curtis. Please don't do that. I find it to be the most annoying thing in the world. I'll tell you what to do. Send Curtis emails and ask them (laughs) for him to pass them on to me. See how he reacts uh, how like that? to that. So that's uh, that's that. Um, let's see. Uh, do one more here. All right. Gail writes, <clears throat> I am uh, 70. Hello, Frank. I'm a 70-year-old chick from Edmonton, Alberta, and I found your tapes from past presidents very interesting. So I can't imagine that American citizens wouldn't also find it interesting. Great show. Love the change of pace from the sometimes repetitive news coverage from so many others. Thank you, Canadian fan Gail. You know, I actually had no idea how many Canadian fans we have. Um, Oh, my God. And I really, you know, one listener reached out to us about getting um, getting a Canadian station to carry our show. I think some Canadian stations should carry our show because uh, clearly there's something that we're doing right that a lot of Canadian listeners really seem to uh, seem to take to. If somebody else wrote me. I can't find who it was. Um, somebody else was asking about cities that have um, cities that. Oh, um, oh, here. This was it. John writes. Uh, in a, this, and this will be the last email, and I'll take your calls, 800-848-9222. John writes, in addition to the richest areas having Democratic representation, I find it ironic that they vote for higher taxes on themselves. In my opinion, the graduated U.S. tax is unfair when it comes to high cost of living areas. 
People in high cost of living areas pay a higher percentage of tax and often have a lower standard of living than people who live in lower cost of living areas. Anyway, it's ironic that Democrats vote for unfair taxes to be levied on themselves. Would love for you to discuss this. Well, John, it's a little more complicated than that. What is the biggest thing that's happened to raise taxes in blue cities, particularly on high income earners in those cities? It was limiting the state and mortgage local interest, uh, local income tax deduction, the state and local tax deduction. So now you used to be able to deduct all that. Now you could only deduct that up to 10%, excuse me, up to $10,000. That really only affects the pretty much the wealthiest people, maybe the top 10 to 20% of income earners, because with the new standard deduction, it makes sense for the rest of us to just take that rather than itemize. The people that really get hurt by that are the high-income tax earners, the high-income earners in the blue taxes, in the blue states, because the blue states and the blue cities have the higher taxes. And that wasn't done by Democrats. That was done by Donald Trump and Republicans. And a lot of people said they did it to kind of get back at the blue cities and the blue states for voting against the Republicans. I'm not saying that that's what happened, but it's not as simple as what you just described. The way that they were giving a break to the blue cities and the taxpayers in those cities was through the state and local tax deduction. Now it was Republicans that did away with that, or at least limited it, not the Democrats. Uh, On a local level, they do vote for people like Andrew Cuomo and Carl Hasty and Andrew Stewart-Cousins, who do raise taxes, so there's some truth to that. All right, 800-848-9222, if we didn't get to your letter today. Hopefully we'll do it on the next edition of The Other Side of Midnight It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is a great actor, not really known as a great singer, but um, a wonderful guy, John Travolta. John Travolta singing Letter In. I got to meet John Travolta once. The guy was incredibly nice. I mean, really, just so nice and kind and down to earth. Uh, Took pictures with anybody that wanted one. And was seemed so eager to uh, meet fans. I always said until I met Kelsey Grammer, he was the nicest celebrity that I'd ever met. Uh, he is. Uh, he was edged out by Kelsey Grammer because uh, he Kelsey Grammer is just an incredible, incredibly nice guy. 
All right, uh, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on anything we have talked about thus far. That's 800-848-9222. I'll tell you, I saw this uh, really interesting piece. It's kind of dated. I have on my computer, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29. I have about 50 tabs open on my uh, Google Chrome. And um, my sister-in-law, Marley, was uh, over the other day and for the ping pong tournament. And she said, what's your favorite tab? And I got it really excited because it, I thought she was talking. It was her way of saying that they were bringing back tab, the soda that I enjoyed. But. Uh, she was looking over my shoulder at my computer because I had the brackets for the tournament on there. And she, she, I said, oh, no, okay. That's not. So what I do is every time I go through 10 new emails I from my work account, I answer one personal email from my private account, and then I read one tab on that's open on my computer and address it. But uh, that leads sometimes to me not reading articles or listening to podcasts or watching videos that people have sent me until some cases weeks or months later. I don't get around to it. So yesterday I saw this fascinating presentation from the New York Times. I think this is from – this might even be from last year. No, yeah, from December. I finally got around to reading it today. It's from December. What makes a movie the greatest of all time? And it goes through this – poll that the magazine Sight and Sound has done of film critics from 1952 to 2022. They do it every 10 years, and they ask people what the favorite movie is. And when they started, and they made a list of the top 10 movies of all time, you know what they said? What In 1952 was the greatest movie of all time? A movie I've never seen, Bicycle Thieves. Number two on that list was a Charlie Chaplin film, City Lights. Then, 10 years later, in 1962, it was Citizen Kane, and it stayed as Citizen Kane for the next 40 years. Then, in 2012, what they say was the um, biggest, the uh, best film ever, Vertigo. And as of last year, 2022, December 1st, they say the best film was uh, Chantel Ackerman's Jean Dielman. I don't know about that. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, Minneapolis is making history. Any guesses as to why? Well, Minneapolis 
is becoming the first city in America to okay a dawn Muslim prayer call. Minneapolis will allow broadcasts of the Muslim call to prayer at all hours, becoming the first major U.S. city to allow the announcement or, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, and if I'm not, if you're Muslim, please call and correct me, or Adhan, to be heard over speakers five times a day, year-round. The Minneapolis City Council unanimously agreed on Thursday to amend the city's noise ordinance, which had prevented dawn and late evening calls at certain times of the year due to noise restrictions. The vote came during the Muslim holy month of Ramadan. The uh, Jelani Hussein, executive director of the Minnesota chapter of the Council on American-Islamic Relations, said after the vote, the Constitution doesn't sleep at night. He said the action in Minneapolis shows the world that a nation founded on freedom of religion makes good on its promise. I'm curious what you think of this. They're going to have a Muslim prayer call broadcasting five times a day. And I have to tell you, I mean, look, I work nocturnal hours anyway, so I'm still awake at 530 in the morning. I don't know how loud these calls to prayer are, but if I lived in a community that was doing this with my 17-month-old son, who a lot of my praying these days, and I'm not being facetious here, a lot of my praying these days involves him sleeping and staying asleep until a reasonable hour, and they're blaring a Muslim prayer call, and if it wakes my son up at 5.30 in the morning, I would be pretty ticked off. And you know what? That's why we have noise ordinances. So when this fellow, Jelani Hussein, says the Constitution doesn't sleep at night, yeah, okay, the, the, no one's stopping you from praying. Pray whenever you want. Pray, pray in t- 24 hours a day. I think um, the Bible says you're supposed to pray incessantly somehow. But it doesn't give you a right to practice religion that's going to disturb other people who are trying to sleep. So let me know what you think of this. Uh, Because I I am generally, when it comes to the Bill of Rights, generally a pretty strict adherence to all the rights guaranteed in them. But I don't like the idea of a, I don't know if it's a siren or I don't know what it sounds like or how loud it is. So I'm speaking as I usually do, from at least partial ignorance here. But I don't like the idea of something that's loud enough for people to hear playing at 5.30. When they were doing that construction, which they still are to some extent, on the property behind me, they would at times do it after 7.30 at night. And I put my son to sleep at around 7.30. I didn't like that either. 
So uh, I'm curious what you think of this. 800-848-9222. Minneapolis has had a flourishing population of East African immigrants since at least the 1990s, and mosques are now common. Three of the 13 members of the city council identify as Muslim. The decision from the city council drew drew no organized community opposition, and Mayor Jacob Fry is expected to sign the measure this week. Imam Muhammad Dukali of Masjid and Nur Mosque in Minneapolis said... Minneapolis has become a city for all religions. Three years ago, city officials worked with this particular mosque to allow the Edhan to be broadcast outdoors five times daily during Ramadan. And prayers are said when light appears at dawn, at noon, at mid to late afternoon, at sunset, and when the night sky appears. In Minnesota... Dawn arrives as early as before 5.30 in the morning in the summer, while sunset at the solstice happens at 9 p.m. So if I lived in Minneapolis, you'd have my son getting woken up at 9 p.m. and at at 5.30 in the morning during the summer. You know what that would leave me to do? Move out of Minneapolis. The city allowed year-round broadcasts last year, but only between 7 a.m. and 10 p.m. Okay, that's reasonable. 7 a.m. and 10 p.m., 5.30 in the morning? It's too much. Um, At a recent public hearing, Christian and Jewish leaders expressed support for extending the hours for the Edhan. City Council Member Lisa Goodman, who on Thursday was observing the final day of Passover, said the Jewish call to prayer, which is generally spoken rather than broadcast, doesn't face legal restrictions. Observers said church bells regularly toll for Christians. Well, pause. Do church bells toll at 530 in the morning? I am all, I love church bells, and I'm sure I would like this um, ad non, but I don't like church bells at 530 in the morning. If you, uh, if you tell me, all right, you have to go to a church in your neighborhood that's ringing church bells at 530 in the morning, you know what? I may have to find a new religion. You know, I am a minister very proud to be in the Universal Life Church. We don't have any calls to prayer, any noises at odd hours, except for this radio show. That's the only religious noise that we have at odd hours. Council member Jamal Osman added, um, it's something I grew up with, but not my children. He said, hearing the call to prayer from local mosques brings him joy. I'm not against local mosques having a call to prayer. I'm against allowing the call to prayer to violate noise ordinances and waking people up at 5.30 in the morning. Now, let's say you work night, like I I do, but I'm, I work, you know, probably I get to bed around 6.37, right? But let's say you get home at 4 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock in the morning, and if you're listening to this show, you, you can appreciate what I'm saying. And you just want to eke out a couple hours of sleep. Is this the sound you want to hear at 5.30? That's it, huh? That's not bad. I mean, I still don't want to hear it at 5.30 in the morning. 
I think that religious sounds, whether it's church bells, whether it's the Muslim call to prayer, whether it's whatever, whatever the Scientologists have, I think they should have to adhere to the same noise ordinances that everybody else does. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. What do you think? Let me begin with Tommy in New Jersey. Hello, Tommy. Hey, what's going on, man? Yeah, I don't mind that sound that much, really. Like, when you when you compare it, like, you're, like, saying, like, religious sounds. It's no different than, like, the train going by. Mm. Yeah, you just got to deal with it. All right. Well, that's fair. I, I didn't think of that, right? Trains do run at all hours. That's that's, that's, that's a fair point. All day long trains are going. Like, you live in the city. You know? You, you have cabbies honking horns and everything. So I'm, I'm not... Yeah, I'm not too worried about okay, it. Okay, that's fair. That's a fair comparison. That's right. We don't stop the trains at 5.30 in the morning. I mean, I think the trains are um, supposed to adhere to a certain decibel level. You usually only hear the trains if you live right by a train station. But okay, okay, that's a fair That's a fair point. Um, Hugo is in Canada. Hello, Hugo. Well, Mr. Moreno, this is a... Every day I think about this subject because I'm confronted to it at every moment, everywhere. Yes, um, yes. It's I think it's as simple as uh, speaking loud. Some people just can't tolerate people that that speak loudly. A.K. Don't you keep it down? Keep it down. Okay, so I keep it down. I'm keeping it. I'm I'm gonna relax because the guy comes. Up, the guy across the guy is coming out of the operating room, and they, they, they just took his arm out. The, the, no, no arm, and he's relaxed. The guy is so relaxed. He says, "You want to pray with me?" And in in the in the waiting room in the hospital waiting room. So I just fall on my knees and 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 we and we we pray very softly. This other this other guy come, comes along. He's from another Christian sect, and and he speaks, and he speaks, and he speaks like Jesus Christ. No, yes, I agree with you. We must respect those who who uh, who, 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 who 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 don't believe, who, who are disturbed by the mention of spiritual things. Well, th- uh, thank you, Hugo. Uh, a couple things here. One, I think that might be the first instance of someone agreeing with me, which may cause me to change my position. After I hear Hugo going on disjointed and he agrees with me, I, I, I don't want to be agreed with. I'm, I'm changing my mind. I'm with that other guy. What are you talking about? Now, um, additionally, uh, I uh, am not against spiritual noises. I think we could use a little more spiritualism, right? But... I'm against noises at odd hours, personally. 800-848-9222. Original Rick is in New Jersey. I almost omitted the original there, Rick. Sorry about that. Yeah, I appreciate it, Frank. I truly do. And good morning. Uh, About the bells, you know, they they took them away from the Christian churches here in in New Jersey. They used to have a 6 o'clock mass. And, you know, at the Eucharist, they ring the bells. They took that away. You can't do it until 8 o'clock. And I, I myself have gotten a ticket for mowing my lawn in the morning because I'm up here talking to you and all that. 
and I, I want to get my lawn done before it gets hot in, in the summer. I got a ticket doing it at like 6.30 in the morning. So having these prayers push, it just seems to me that this is a classic thing of politicians capitulating to noisy uh, clergymen that want their religion, their way. And, it, 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 you know, the rest of us have to hear this. It, that's not fair to us. It, it's, why can't they send out calls to prayer on text messages? I, 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 you know what? I was thinking the same thing. I, I agree with you. I agree with you. Why, why, I don't know. Maybe there is some reason they can't. Just have the normal calls to prayer during conventional hours, right? I mean, why do you need a call to prayer blaring loudly all over the city before 8 o'clock in the morning? I don't think you do. Keep it between... Now, I mean, can you imagine this at 5.30 in the morning? You have a 17-month-old that's just wanting to sleep. I, um, again, it's it's not anything against religion or any specific religion. It's against noise at early morning hours. That's my take on this. So the fact that one city has now done this, the it, it's going to go like dominoes. Dominoes. That's my prediction. 800-848-9222. Robert is in Pearl River. Hello, Robert. Yeah, Frank, how you doing? I, uh, well, you know, it scares the, the pets. I have a rabbit. He goes nuts with those things. But yeah, that's another good point. Again. The other thing about the movies, um, I, I make films, independent filmmaker, and I like uh, one of my favorite ones was The Spy Who Loved Me, the James Bond of Roger Moore, big Roger Moore fan, and then Cliff Robertson with Charlie. That was uh, from the book Flowers of Algernon, uh, when he's the retarded bakery worker who gets a, an operation on his brain to you know, re- revitalize his brain tissue. It's a great movie made in 1967. He got the Academy Award for it because Cliff Robertson, he was also on PT-109 playing uh, a Navy commander. So you might want to check those out. Yeah, I mean, they, they're not on this sight and sound list, but that doesn't mean they're they're not great. Thank you, Robert. I don't think the uh, you're not supposed to say, uh, call people that are developmentally disabled the R word anymore. So I, I, and I won't, you know, I won't repeat that lest anyone be offended by it. But I, um, you know, there's a city in New Jersey that is very heavily Muslim. It's uh, South Patterson, New Jersey. And it's really a neighborhood in Passaic County. It, that has a huge Muslim population. I can absolutely see that being the next city to do this. Absolutely. And it's going to go like dominoes. That's my prediction. 800-848-9222. Tim is in New Jersey. Hello, Tim. Hey, good afternoon or morning. Uh, uh, I, just, I don't know what day it is ner- either. Don't worry. <laughs> this one hits a nerve with me. I was stationed over in the Middle East during Desert Storm um, outside of a port in Saudi Arabia. And we'd have the prayer calls waking us up at all hours of the night, 530 in the morning. That's not the prayer call I used to hear. I don't know if it's there's different tunes or different types of prayer calls, but this thing was loud and, and woke you out of a sound sleep and scary as well. Really? I agree with you. So, so my, you. my fears are, are well-founded that it will yes. wake people up at 530 Absolutely. in the morning. Um, Absolutely. How long did it go for at 530 when you experienced it in the Middle East? I'm going to say um, maybe a minute. Okay, so it's just enough to make sure you're woken up. It's not 10 minutes. It's not 10 seconds. No, 
Okay. So it's about a minute. And again, I don't know if they have different calls, but that's not the one I remember. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Tim. Appreciate your insight there. Thanks for your service as well. Joe is in Queens. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. I want to bring up two things. The second on the Pope, but on the bicycle thief. If you're going to watch that, that's in a foreign language, good movie, you know, in terms of the photography. Uh, watch, have you seen like Dulce Vita? Well, um, is that uh, Life is Beautiful? Well, with Marcelo Mastrioni, see that movie. Oh, it's yeah, amazing. no, I actually yeah. haven't, no. Yeah, yeah. There's a scene where he's he, he's basically a newscaster, and uh, he's writing about the decadent crowd, and then he kind of gets lured into it, you know, at yeah. one point. Uh, and, and so I got, I got off on a tangent going through all these movies, and, and hang on, Joe, don't, um, don't go anywhere. If people want to see that whole list and how it's changed since 1952, I just linked to it on my Facebook page. And it's a really fun thing to do to just scroll. Just start this article at the top. And even it's, it's a lot of pictures and a lot of visuals and a, lot, a little bit of, you know, um, moving images. If you don't even want to read it, you don't have to. You could just scroll and see how the films have changed over the years and see how different filmmakers, their place on the list has either improved over time or it's gotten worse over time. Orson Welles, Ingmar Bergman, they've gotten worse over time. And what they did in 2012 and in uh, 2022, they didn't just have a top 10 list of the greatest films of all time. They had a top, I believe, a top 100 so uh, you can they really do a good job looking into this. And um, I, I thought it was an interesting, interesting piece. It's on my Facebook page right now. Take a look at it. Facebook dot com slash Morano fan. All right. Uh, without further ado, Joe, what else did you want to add? Yeah. OK. Just on that movie. Look for this. And I want to comment on the Pope uh, on that movie. Look for a scene where he's typing on a beachfront villa and he has like a eight-year-old boy, you know, picking up his papers. It's just an amazing scene. You wonder what happened to the kid. On the Pope, look at LifeSiteNews.com. Uh, this Pope is not a Christian or a Catholic, unfortunately. Uh, you know, for example, I read a couple of books on him. He said the miracle of the loaves, they had the food already there. And, you know, they, uh, Jesus just sent a wave through the people and they just took it out. So, He's he's not you know unfortunately even a Christian you know uh, but lifesitenews.com has I, I, Joe um, well first yeah. just to clarify in the film uh, the film yeah. that you're talking about is it th- that I have to see that has the scene that you mentioned is it La Dolce Vita or Bicycle Thieves yes, okay La, La Dolce Vita okay uh, you'll love this Got film it. I will check it out yeah uh, honestly I understand you probably have many significant ideological, theological, uh, and other differences with the Pope. But how can you really call the Pope the leader of the, wor- of the world's Catholics? How can you really call say that the Pope is not a Christian or a Catholic? How can you do that? Just, just by what he says. Just by what but, he says, Frank. But, but isn't I mean, that exercising yeah. the same kind of judgment that is Jesus it? didn't? No, 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 it's not a judgment, Frank. Well, it's not a judgment for you to say the leader of the world's Catholics isn't Catholic? He's 
not a leader, Frank. Look at what you got to look in, at. What in he your says. opinion, right? right. So, no, no, no. no. Okay. He he doesn't agree with anything that's written in the gospel. So, in your view, example. in your view, people that don't agree uh, don't agree with anything that's written in the gospels, even if they become the pope, they're not Catholic. Right. Right, okay. Right. Well, is, is that with... is that based in any sort of dogma or doctrine? Well, well, Frank. I, I, I mean, anybody that would read the Gospel or the Miracle of Lodes would taste take it on face value. All right. Well, Where so do you come off again, saying the... Joe, yeah. Joe, it's just it, to me, it's ridiculous. Thank you. To me, the hallmark of Christianity, and, and I don't pretend to be a religious scholar at all, is to l- live by Jesus's words uh, and. In the book of Matthew, chapter 7, I think, when he says, Judge not that ye be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. If you're going to say, be the judge of whether someone else meets your litmus test of who's Christian or who's Catholic, I'm not sure that's very Christ-like, honestly. So I, I get that you don't like the Pope. You don't have to like the Pope. But for you to say he's not Christian, come on. It sounds like you don't like him because you don't agree with his politics. And you know what? Some There are a lot of leftist Catholic people over the years. Dorothy Day, who, uh, if she's not already a saint, they've begun the process of trying to make her a saint. Dorothy Day was as left-wing as can be. Um, Martin Sheen, there's no more devout Catholic in the world than Martin Sheen, also happens to be a socialist. If you're talking about people like, um, you know, liberation theology, it's a whole aspect of socialism that's centered around, around Christianity. And if you look at a lot of the things that Jesus said about money, I mean, they fit very well with socialist dogma. So I, I think that's a load of hooey, to be honest. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Andrew is in Connecticut. Hello, Andrew. 77, music radio. Andrew? I don't want to take you away from anything, Andrew. good I, I like that song um jim is in new jersey jim do you have any songs for us unfortunately no but good morning frank and uh happy tax deadline day to you and your listeners thank you and i want to wish a happy tax day to john tirolosi <laughs> and all the accountants that are up early filing and filling out their last uh client returns today so hopefully uh all of you guys that have worked hard this tax season uh, get a vacation very soon uh what was your comment jim Okay, well, first of all, uh, thank you. Uh, we spoke a few weeks ago, and thank you for sending me the material on Professor Greats and his, um, uh, uh, what, what do you call the tax? Yeah, uh, the, uh, he calls it the competitive uh, tax. But, uh, the yeah. competitive tax. 
Yes, it's very interesting. Um, the question that you'd have to ask yourself, Frank, is, uh, well, the competitive tax is a hybrid between the national sales tax and an income tax above $100,000. And the question you'd have to ask is, uh, how long do you think the threshold is going to stay $100,000? Now, um, I uh, just as, as to my credentials, uh, I'm Jim Bennett. I'm the uh, uh, secretary board member and grassroots director of an organization called Americans for Fair Taxation. We're the sponsoring organization behind the fair tax. That's the national sales tax. And if you want to check us out, we're at fairtax.org. And I remember a couple of your criticisms from last time. Uh, Obviously, the rate, nominal rate, is uh, 23% tax inclusive, 30% tax exclusive. But nobody's going to effectively pay that rate under the fair tax for a couple of reasons. Um, First, you have the uh, family consumption allowance. It's called the prebate, and that goes to every household in the United States whose members are lawful residents of the United States to untax that household for consumption up to the poverty level. Now, um, I think in in terms of the rate, one thing you could do with fair tax – if you wanted to lower the rate was you could get rid of uh, replacing the payroll tax, which covers Medicare and Social Security. Uh, But then you're going to run into the criticism that those are the most regressive taxes uh, that exist, and you might as well keep that. Right. And that the the other uh, the other reason to comment about the tax under the fair tax is that uh, elasticity and demand and competition will force pre-tax prices down. So in effect, wait, 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 uh, so, uh, again, uh, um, uh, and again, I was hoping to have a whole debate about this when uh, they when Congress scheduled hearings about this because we were um, we were told that Kevin McCarthy, as a condition for becoming Speaker and getting the Freedom Caucus on board, would um, would have a hearing on this. But I've been paying I've been paying attention pretty closely, and to my knowledge, and maybe you know better, there haven't been uh, any hearings uh, about this, but. Take me through that last thing that you just said, that how um, this wouldn't dramatically raise prices for everybody. Well, uh, first of all, uh, if your uh, household is law of members or lawfully residents of the United States, you're going to get a refund in advance at the beginning of the month uh, for consumption up to the poverty level. So in effect, up to the poverty level, uh, under the fair tax, nobody would pay a dime of tax, which you can't say today because uh, people pay the payroll tax, which is probably the most uh, regressive tax in the portfolio. And secondly, uh, I actually uh, did a study on this in the 7th Congressional District, and I found that people would uh, pay— In uh, what state? In, uh, New Jersey. Uh-huh. Uh and I found that uh, people – I had to make a number of simplifying assumptions because it's difficult to compare a consumption tax with an income tax. But uh, if uh, I took uh, three uh, communities, of uh, a uh, working-class community, Linden, I took Mount Olive, which is somewhere in between, and I took Summit, which is uh, the uh, upper middle class, and I found in all three cases – the average household, which is uh, three members, and I was assuming a married couple and a, and a child, would pay less tax under the fair tax than they pay today with uh, if you include the Social Security tax. 
So um, overall, it's uh, uh, everybody would benefit. And are you including the additional price that they'd have to pay to, say, buy a house? Um, I'm taking that into consideration because competition would uh, would force the pre-tax prices down. And by the way, most houses wait, wait, are wait, 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 wait. You stock. keep wait, uh, Jim. I mean, how can you say what competition would force the t- the pre-tax prices down? Well, because uh, uh, be, uh, because you're getting rid of the embedded tax costs that are included in the uh, in the uh, in, in the in the price of every good you buying every service that you use. I, I, I See, I don't think that's true because uh, all the people that make that good would uh, – and, and again, I, it's, I don't want to get into a whole discussion about this, Jim, because I want to do – I want to save it for when we have the hearings. We'll do whole hours worth of shows on this. But the tax of – the price of that good would also reflect everything that is now required in terms of additional – Taxes that are now had to pay. So just understand where this it, it doesn't work. I want it to work. I want it to work because I love the idea of taking home all of your uh, paycheck. So we all understand how the current tax system works, basically. Right. And you receive gross wages from your employers and you automatically have income taxes withheld and payroll taxes withheld from your paychecks. A worker might see that his employer pays him $1,000 per week, let's say, but he only has 800 to spend because of all the taxes. So what you hear the fair tax advocates repeatedly say is that their proposal would allow all workers to keep 100% of their paycheck. The clear implication is that it would be exactly what Jim said, that withholding would simply disappear, including for payroll taxes. The worker now netting $800 per week would immediately get a $200 raise and start taking home the full $1,000 now that he's paid. Now, let's stick with this for a minute, and let's pretend. And meanwhile, you, it wouldn't be the case because you think New York's going to do away with its taxes? You think New Jersey's going to do away with its taxes? They're going to keep their taxes. They're not going to say, oh, well, the federal government's doing away with income tax. We're going to do. You're still going to have to file a, a tax return. But anyway, let's stick with this idea. So the worker now getting 800 per week would immediately get a $200 raise and start taking home the full $1,000 that he's supposed to get, okay? Instead of paying income and payroll taxes, workers would pay their taxes when they buy things. So this would impose a 30% tax on all goods and services. So on the day the fair tax is imposed, a worker's disposable income would rise. It is true. But he would have to pay more for every single thing he buys. There's no way you can rate, throw a 30% tax on everything and have prices go down. There is no way that that is possible. It is economic utopianism. The I've done alien segments that are far, far more credible than that idea. It's just not possible to put a 30% tax on everything, including government purchases, and say prices are going to go down. It doesn't work. But, you know, so let's play this out. Whether he's better off or not depends on what his effective tax rate is. See, assuming he spends all of his income and no more than that, he will be no worse off if he now pays uh, 30% of his income in taxes. Th- that is his effective tax rate as as of uh, 23% or 
Um, he's 23% more income, but pays 23% more for everything he buys. But in this case, for this guy, the fair tax is a wash. The worker's no better or, or worse off in terms of taxes than he is now. He may still prefer the fair tax because he doesn't like filing tax returns, but you still have to file a tax return if you live in a state that has an income tax. The worker, um, so fine. These are all perfectly valid reasons to favor the fair tax or any other consumption tax proposal. But what if the worker is now paying less than 23% of his income in federal taxes? In this case, he's worse off. The prices of the things he buys rise by more than his income rises from the elimination of the income and payroll taxes. Conversely, if one is wealthy... And in a tax bracket above 23%, that person would be much better off. His income and payroll taxes would fall by much more than the prices of goods and services he consumes would rise. And this has been looked at by uh, Grover Norquist of Americans for Tax Reform, by the Wall Street Journal. This has been looked at by very conservative groups. And there's just no way to make the numbers make sense. There's a reason that this has not been implemented anywhere. Because if you have a calculator, it just doesn't make sense. I think the really question, the question you have to ask is who funds Americans for fair taxation? Because usually when you have a group that is um, pushing a certain proposal, chances are... um, Part of the funding for that group is coming from people that probably stand to benefit a great deal from it. Not just with this plan and not just with this group, but any group. All right, 800-848-9222. I didn't mean to go so long there, but Jim got us off track on a fair tax discussion. 800-8. You know who originally came up with the idea for the fair tax, by the way? Just to go back to our religion conversation and bring us back. The Church of Scientology. The Church of Scientology came up with it in the uh, about 30 years ago as a way to get rid of the IRS. Um, I, I, I think that's the case. Anyway, I mean, maybe it wasn't the fair tax specifically, but they did come up with a um, national sales tax as a way to get rid of the IRS because they didn't like how the IRS was treating Scientology. All right. Uh, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
Jones, don't know why. Hey, you know what's a big problem with young people in this country? Colorectal cancer. Colorectal cancer is rising in young adults and uh, some very concerning numbers. No one's exactly sure why the cases are rising. Some people point to issues with diet. Uh, Some people... They have other theories, but um, if you look at the numbers, the numbers tell us that this disease, colorectal cancer, is the fourth most common cancer diagnosed in the United States, and it is the second leading cause of cancer deaths. They also tell us that the, the numbers also tell us that the rates of new cases and deaths from colorectal cancer have fallen dramatically over the past four decades. But the numbers only tell a part of the story. While overall cases and deaths have declined, especially among older adults, because they're getting colonoscopies and doing the proper preventative care and maintenance, colorectal cancer diagnoses have increased dramatically among young adults. An American Cancer Society report released on March 1st indicates that the rate of new colorectal cancers among Americans younger than 55 increased from 11% of all cases in 1995 to 20% in 2019. Also, 60% of new cases diagnosed in 2019 were advanced stage cancer compared to 57% in 1995. So this is... Very, very troubling. Very troubling. One statistic that hasn't changed is that colorectal cancer still affects mostly seniors. 55% of cases are diagnosed in patients 65 and older. So for a variety of reasons, more people are getting screened and fewer people are smoking. Colorectal cancer rates have declined, but the younger for younger americans the numbers tell a different story the new cases of colorectal cancer doubled for people under the age of 55 the disease is becoming the leading cause of cancer deaths for americans 20 to 49 years old so um very troubling uh, they don't know exactly why but um They believe it's probably lifestyle-related. The American fast food diet, they say it could be the sedentary lifestyle. It could involve alcohol consumption, and there might be other factors as well. But it's uh, certainly scary. Certainly scary. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. You can also find me on Twitter, at Frank Morano. That's uh, Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O, or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Morano Fan. That's Facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O Fan. Uh, James is in Pittsburgh. Hello, James. 
Good morning, sir. How are you? Doing great, James. What's on your mind? You know, in Pennsylvania, it's not fair because they tax um, hot food like at McDonald's, but food in the grocery stores are not taxed. So that's not fair for people to pay that tax on hot food here. That's not right. But me, I, I was the nurse at West Palm Beach, the Humana Hospital, and I never paid taxes. I worked for DM, and I never filed those taxes. So here, years later, they came after me. So what I did was I went down in the Mellon Bank Tower in downtown Pittsburgh. It's like 60 stories in the air. And I got on the elevator, and I pushed the top button. It took me all the way to the president's office. It was all in glass at the top of the building. And the lady's desk said, this is a secure area. What are you doing up here, Mr. Package? I says, well, I wanted to find out about my taxes. So they said, go downstairs. So I got to the bottom of the elevator, and there was two black policemen there from Pittsburgh. They said, you got to leave the property. So then uh, there was a Chinese woman sitting on a couch chair combing her hair. I said, uh, oh, that's beautiful hair. Does your relatives own, these, own this bank? And she sort of shook her head, yes. So about, I went home, and I, as soon as I went out the door, it started pouring rain at the bank. And I got home about two weeks later, I got a federal tax levy from the federal government. That's a true story. Andrew Mellon, the banker from years ago, he put in windows, in the steel mill windows, to make production more um, advanced. And he paid you a pittance. James, why did you know Mr. Mellon? I, I know who he is. Uh, not personally, I didn't know him. Why didn't you? Um, why didn't you pay your taxes for all those years? Well, I, I got disabled and I, I got depression, and I, I ended up in, in Mayview, Mayview State Hospital in Bridgeville, PA, mm. and they cleared all my taxes. Oh, okay. Well, so um, how did it work out for you? Did uh, I know you said they put a levy for your taxes, but did you did you have to pay them? No, they haven't did anything. I got mental, the mental um, Washington County PA mental health handles my money. They're my payee, and they never did anything as far as yet. But the federal tax levy. If I die, they have to take everything I own. So I, I own a lot of doodads. You know, what a doodad is a knickknack. Hey, hey uh, James, I'm wishing you the best of luck uh, with uh, everything that you're going through. I appreciate you sharing that. Okay, eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Greg is in Ohio. Hello, Greg. Hi, Frank. I haven't called you in a while, so I have a couple things to talk to you about. Okay. First of all. I, my son used to live down in Mobile, Alabama, and they have no real estate taxes. So they have like a 6% tax on everything you buy down there. Well, I, so, I, I can relate. I live in a place that has uh, an 8 and 3 quarter percent tax on everything I buy up here. Well, it's kind of unfair. I mean, the guy living down the road in a $6 million home, he don't pay nothing. Well, I I, I, I I hear you. Again, I'm no expert on uh, the tax rate structure in Mobile, Alabama. Right. But, um, right. you know, in in the place where I live, you have to pay a little bit more in property taxes, generally, if you have a, a nicer property. Well, if you've got to renew your license down there, it's $400. Yeah, I, I, they nickel and dime you to get uh, to, to death, yeah. right? They say the only thing, the guarantees in life are death and taxes. Right. And the second thing I want to talk to you about is I've been a ham radio operator for 40 years, unlicensed. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I know of no way that you can take out the interference of an electrical car that, that you will not get AM radio. I have no way that you can do it. 
I think it's I think it uh, is a ruse. Uh, I think it's they're they're pushing this for some other reason, clearly. And, you know, I didn't get to see any of um, Tucker Carlson's interview with Elon Musk last night. Uh, We have a couple of clips of it, but um, I I think they mostly talked about Twitter. But if and thanks for the call, Greg, if I got to interview Elon Musk, that would be my first question is, why are you doing this? You who are such an advocate for free speech, you're all about free speech and free expression and uh, disrupting the conventional legacy media. Nobody does a better job of that than talk radio. And this is going to really hurt talk radio. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Robin Thicke, uh, Love After War. This is not a a good song. This is a Matt Blaze selection. Um, And so I asked you why we were playing this, and your response was? I said, I saw it. I thought it sounded all right. I didn't think it was horrible. No, this is is not good. And and we didn't have any of the stuff that you asked for for today. What about stuff I asked for yesterday? No, we don't have that either. Are we getting it? I mean, what's going on? I am, you know, I am not in charge of the purchasing of the music, so I cannot tell you that answer. All right. Um, so that's it. Sorry for this, everybody. But um, address your, your letters to Matt Blaze. By the way, you can um, listen to Matt Blaze, Kenneth, and Alex Barnard in the Darker Side of Midnight podcast. Just go to Red Apple podcastnetwork.com search darker side of midnight and they do a post show wrap up that uh, where they analyze the day's events and um, today I have a feeling not only will they be making fun of me which is sort of their go to but they will also probably be letting Richard C. Hoagland have a piece of their mind as well so we'll see where that goes All right, uh, 800-848-9222 800-848-9222 so, um, I my they discontinued tab. So one of my favorite sodas these days is Zevia. And during Lent, when I abstained from alcohol, and I also abstained from you know from bread and pasta and really everything, I would allow myself one treat of a Zevia a day. And I even got these tall cans of Zevia because my favorite flavor of the Zevia is the ginger root beer. They're all good. I like them all, but I love the ginger root beer. And uh, I got in the habit of having one of those a day because Zevia is actually pretty healthy. There's there's nothing there's nothing bad in it. There's uh, it's just carbonated water, stevia leaf, artificial flavors, and citric acid. No sodium, no sugar, no calories. It's almost like a flavored. Mineral water. And I also really like the taste because it's not too sweet. Like a regular soda might be too sweet. It's not. So um, my wife made dinner last night. 
I'm I'm tasked with dinner again today. This is my dinner night, so I don't know what we're going to make. I'm going to go back to the recipes that some of you suggested yesterday and see what, what I have in the arsenal. But um, she asked what I want to drink when she's setting the table. I was entertaining Carmine or working on the show. And I said, all right, I'll have a ginger root beer. And uh, she said, oh, that sounds good. Maybe I'll have that one too. And I said, okay, great. You can have mine if you want. I'll have something else. And uh, she said, oh, no, is it one of those big ones? Yeah, it is. So she, I said, well, maybe I'll just have a little bit of yours if that's okay. Sure. So she gets a glass and she pours my ginger root beer into her glass. I drink from the can. The thing that immediately strikes you when you drink a Zevia ginger root beer or a Zevia cola is what? It's clear. It's clear. If you drink, whether it's a cola or the ginger root beer, it tastes like ginger root beer. It tastes like cola, but it doesn't look like mug root beer or Pepsi or Coke. It's clear. You know why it's clear? Because there's no dye, no food coloring, nothing at all. And I I said to Rachel, I said, do you see that? Do you see the color of that? She said, it's clear. I said, that's right. There's no dye. And she said, why do other sodas put dye in there? Why do they feel the need to color Coca, uh, you know, colas and root beers and other companies? Don't you think people would drink it just the same? And I thought that was such an interesting question. And I don't have a good answer to it. Uh, I'm wondering if anyone knows that. Why do they put these this coloring in sodas because I don't think it makes it taste any better uh, I can't imagine it's good for your insides can't imagine it's good for your teeth not that any kind of soda is exactly a health food why do you think they do that I have no idea personally I thought maybe one of you would know 800-848-9222 if you want to comment Coming up next hour, we're going to discuss this um, National Guardsman who leaked all this private information from the Pentagon. I was listening to Congressman Michael Lawler on uh, on uh, with my friend Sid Rosenberg the other day. He said he should go to prison for the rest of his life. I'll give you my take in a minute, and it's a little different than Michael Lawler's. Um, I'll take your calls and we'll play the $1,000 minute. We've got a lot of other stuff to get to as well. Until next hour, uh, this is The Other Side of Midnight. Your influence counts. Be sure to use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. All right. Jack Teixeira. American hero or American zero? That is the question. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. I kind of think the answer is somewhere in between. On Thursday... The 21-year-old U.S. National, Air National Guardsman, Jack Teixeira, was arrested by the FBI for taking, for allegedly leaking classified military documents in what is alleged to be, or believed to be, the most serious security breach since the publication of more than 700,000 documents by um Julian Assange and WikiLeaks back in 2010. Federal agents arrested Teixeira at his home in Massachusetts. The arrest came just a week after the leaks became widely circulated online, but months after Teixeira allegedly first shared them with an online chat group that he was a member of. Among other things, The documents detailed U.S. intelligence spying on allies and an unfiltered view of Ukraine's military capabilities. Teixeira was an airman airman first class and an IT specialist at Otis Air National Guard Base in Massachusetts. I think we have a lot of listeners there, actually. Attorney General Merrick Garland said he was being charged with the unauthorized removal, retention, and transmission of classified national defense information. He could face up to 15 years in prison, according to some reports, though leakers often plead down their sentence. As I mentioned last hour, I heard Republican Congressman Michael Lawler on with Sid Rosenberg. He doesn't want this guy to get 15 years. He wants him to go to prison for the rest of his life. I mean, that's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Someone else who wants a very harsh punishment for this leaker is Senator Lindsey Graham. He was on Sunday's uh, ABC News This Week with George Stephanopoulos. What they're suggesting will destroy America's ability to defend itself. That it's okay to release classified information uh, based on your political views, that the ends justify the means. It is not okay. Let let me give you a little more context before we hear the rest of Senator Lindsey Graham's scintillating analysis. The case involving Teixeira is very unique among intelligence leaks, namely because... He does not appear to have been acting as a whistleblower, as we've seen with some people like Edward Snowden, or as a foreign agent. Um, You know, Jonathan Pollard was secretly spying for Israel. Instead, several reports from The Washington Post and The New York Times 
traced the initial leaks of the documents to a group chat on something called Discord. Teixeira was admired by the group's younger members, and he went by the nickname OG in the group. That stands for Original Gangster. It dis- This group discussed guns, military gear, and offensive jokes online. Members of the group alleged that Teixeira's motivation for the leaks was an effort to impress or educate his online friends. I believe that. I believe that. I can absolutely see that. Some of the documents that were shared on the Discord chat or have uh, since circulated online were doctored, though U.S. officials believe the vast majority of the material was genuine. Fallout from the leaks is major. Allies in countries like South Korea have expressed a mix of outrage and denial because we're spying on them. While U.S. military leaders fear the leaks could expose sources and methods, potentially putting people in danger and Ukraine at a disadvantage in the war. Some reports suggest Ukraine has already changed its battlefield strategy in response. The weeks, the leaks drew widespread criticism from across Congress, though some members like uh, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene praised Teixeira because he told the truth about the presence of U.S. special forces on the ground in Ukraine. This is what she said on Twitter. (laughs) This woman is just, she's just too much. This is what she said. Um, Jack Teixeira is white, male, Christian, and, uh, hang on, let's see, is white, male, Christian, and anti-war. That makes him an enemy to the Biden regime. And he told the truth about troops being on the ground in Ukraine and a lot more. Ask yourself, who is the real enemy? A young, low-level National Guardsman? And she made it plural instead of Guardsman, M-A-N. Or the administration that is waging war in Ukraine, a non-NATO nation against nuclear Russia without war powers. Now, what does the fact that he is Christian and white have to do with this at all? It has nothing to do with this. He wasn't leaking the documents because of some belief in Christianity. That's And again, the rest of what she says, I get. But... The fact that he's white and Christian has nothing to do with this. So the people on the right are divided. You have some people criticizing the Biden administration for allowing this to happen and other people criticizing Teixeira's defenders like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Some are framing Teixeira as a whistleblower and argue the corporate media is engaging in character assassination. Others say he is a criminal leaker and should be prosecuted, not praised. Um, In Red State, the blogger Strafe said Teixeira was no hero and no martyr. In PJ Media, Ben Barty 
criticized the rules on classification and the corporate media's relationship with the deep state. The New York Post editorial board said defenders of Teixeira should be ashamed. This is what the New York Post said. One sure way to become a political hero in this country, it seems, is to betray it by revealing official secrets. Just look at the response, left and right, to the theft and publication of highly classified documents by Teixeira. Representative Green defended him, and lefty gadfly Glenn Greenwald praised Teixeira on TV by by saying that he did the job of what journalists claim to do. In reality, Teixeira simply sought to impress boys in an online forum. Most reasonable people would agree that spilling state secrets simply to show off, not to uncover human rights abuses or other crimes, is not just spectacularly dumb, but also treasonous. Worse, the debate about his heroism distracts from more pressing questions like why would a gamer barely into his 20s serving in tech support have such easy and plentiful access to high-level documents? I think that last part of that editorial is a fair question. I mean, why does he have access to all these classified information? I feel like this is not the kind of guy that should have this kind of information. Lindsey Graham um, in response to Marjorie Taylor Greene, Tucker Carlson, and other conservative defenders of Teixeira. What they're suggesting will destroy America's ability to defend itself. That it's okay to release classified information uh, based on your political views. That the ends justify the means. It is not okay. If you're a member of the military intelligence community and you disagree with American policy, and you think you're going to be okay when it comes to leaking classified information, you're going to go to jail. It's one of the most irresponsible statements you can make. Now, what is the left saying? The left has also criticized the fact that Teixeira has classified clearance. Some are warning about the rise of young white men who are being radicalized. Others Focus on the importance of smaller group chats that are now driving major events like January 6th and these leaks. In Slate, which is a left-wing publication, Fred Kaplan said he didn't fit the usual profile of a leaker and questioned how this could have happened. In Salon, Lucian K. Trescott IV warned about the radicalization of white youth. In The Atlantic... Charlie Warzel said, of course, this is how the intelligence leak happened. Uh, Here was Glenn Greenwald on Tucker Carlson talking about this on uh, either Thursday night or Friday. I think it was Thursday. I can't think of an incident, Tucker, that reveals more vividly the real function of our nation's largest media corporations than what just happened here. If you're a real journalist, somebody who's devoted to transparency, bringing, shining a light on the most powerful government actors when they lie to the American people and informing the public, you would be celebrating this person who stepped forward and risked his security to show his fellow citizens that the government was lying about this incredibly important war with a nuclear armed power that we have actual troops deployed on the ground in Ukraine. There's going to be no diplomatic resolution throughout at least 2023 that Zelensky is planning on using our weapons to strike deep into Russia, which we were told would never happen, risking escalation. He did the job of what journalists claim to do, which is show the public the truth. 
if you work for the intelligence agencies, you would be furious at this person. You would hate him because he revealed that you just lied. He exposed the truth about what you were doing. What's amazing is the New York Times, the Washington Post, all the people who were at that Pentagon briefing today think the way the CIA and the Pentagon think. They hate this person. It was the New York Times and the Washington Post that did the FBI's work and found the leaker and led the FBI to him. They're demanding that he be punished. They're demanding that the government clamp down and keep things more and more secret. What kind of journalist would ever do that, would want to see a leaker exposed and punished and then demand that the government keep even more secrets? But that is what this, these, these media corporations are there to do. They love leaks when the CIA and Homeland Security tell them to leak. That's when they disseminate propaganda to the public, like they did during the Trump years when they leaked the transcript between Michael Flynn and Ambassador Kislyak, the most serious kind of leaking crime. The Washington Post did that. Nobody looked for that leaker. Nobody cared. Everybody cheered because it served the interests of the security state. But when it comes to transparency that undermines the agenda of these agencies and that proves to the American people what the truth is, it's amazing that these journalists are on the side of the government and will actually hunt down the leaker and demand that he be punished even more. I have to tell you, I really do uh, agree with most of what Glenn Greenwald said there. Um, my take is somewhere in between Marjorie Taylor Greene and uh, Lindsey Graham. I am very surprised at the source of this leak, which is pretty novel. Uh, usually, I was thinking this leaker was going to be someone like an Edward Snowden. I think uh, the motivations of this guy, I don't think he's a hero. I don't think he was trying to uh, affect a policy change. Uh, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene said that he's anti-war. I'm not even convinced he's anti-war. I think he was trying to show off to a bunch of a bunch of underage kids. Uh, but I still think that the leak and the information that came out of this is valuable. So the the thing for me that's the hardest aspect of this is figuring out how to punish him. Because I think 15 years is too harsh. I think life in prison, as Michael Lawler wants, is way too harsh. But uh, you can't let someone leak classified information like this and get away without any sort of a penalty. So um, I wouldn't say I was shocked, but... It, the details of this are not at all what I expected. So there's a lot of harm in deplatforming people, in not it's kicking them off Twitter and Facebook and everywhere else. One of those risks is that it can push people into these tiny little corners of the internet where groups like lo- loners like this fella Teixeira were a part of increasingly common. Um, uh, silos of misfits, essentially. And I think it's become apparent in the last few years that the existence of these groups is becoming more and more significant. I like leaks because they often give us an unfiltered look at events. The Pentagon Papers, WikiLeaks, Snowden, I love the information that we got from that. And I think, but for that information coming out, the government would have continued making a lot of mistakes, particularly in the foreign policy area and the domestic spying area. Quite a few people, I'm sure, are upset with me saying that. I know that it's possible that leaks can have a negative impact. 
They can put people in danger, change the course of a war, set off a public panic. Uh, I don't mean that every leaker is noble or every leak is good. But as a guy that likes this information, reliable information in particular, I love reading about it. So while intelligence assessments assessments can be kind of squishy or written with very low confidence, very few things offer us such an unvarnished and high-level information as access to classified documents. So the motivation does matter. And with that in mind, I kind of agree with all of Teixeira's critics, including Lindsey Grant. I have no idea what to make of the accusations of racism or anti-Semitism, given that I haven't really seen the comments that they say are racist or anti-Semitic, which every news report seems to refer to. Um, Otherwise, the extensive reporting on him still paints the picture of someone that's more interested in acting cool and showing off to his online buddies than any sort of noble political goal. He was not trying to uncover human rights abuses or even vast government conspiracies. He didn't intend to inform the public. He was trying to impress his friends with a dose of reality about what was going on in Ukraine. You know, I've probably been guilty of this, especially in my younger days. You know, you hear certain things from gangsters or from politicians, and then you're you're in a group of people, you're with a group of people. Now, I didn't do it online, but in person at a bar somewhere who don't know any gangsters or politicians, and you say, oh, yeah, is that what you think's going on? This is what's going on. And, you know, people do like that. So I, I'm sure I've done similar stuff, never classified information. None of these leaks were supposed to be seen beyond this little chat room. But I also think the pundits are a little too quick to dismiss his motivations here. The Washington Post simultaneously cited a member of the chat group who said Teixeira wasn't hostile to the U.S. government, but a few sentences later, they noted he had a dark view of the government. So it was totally inconsistent. Um, so more difficult than parsing the motivations is deciding how to punish him. Um, he's not a particularly sophisticated leaker. He's not a foreign agent, not some kind of evil mastermind. So the government really will have to balance the need for deterrence because you can't have everybody leaking classified information, which calls for a harsh penalty with Teixeira's motivation and circumstances, which, I mean, to be honest, this guy just looks like, I don't want to use the term loser, but he looks like an ignorant, insecure young man. And the government has very little choice but to give him a serious penalty. And a prison term is probably appropriate. But the term should leave plenty of space for him to learn from this and re-enter society as a better man rather than face the rest of his life in prison as Michael Lawler wants. I'll tell you something else I also don't like. The press, namely the New York Times and the Washington Post, bragging about how they helped catch this guy. And Matt Taibbi wrote a column about this, and I know Glenn Greenwald covered it on his podcast. I didn't hear the whole thing. And um, the New York Times and the Washington Post trumpeted their roles in helping identify Teixeira for the FBI. Essentially, they said, we're delivering him to you with his head on a platter. This is such an awful look for the American press. 
This is not tracking down a serial killer like the Son of Sam or the Zodiac Killer or exposing Enron's fraud. The alleged crime here is releasing true information, information that belongs rightly to the American public and is secret only because it was slapped with a classified sticker. At most, a newspaper might decide not to publish such information, but to help jail this leaker, as the Times and the Washington Post are bragging about doing, it's nuts. Reporters are supposed to be interested in everything and listen to information without judgment, like doctors. Yet the whole industry is working itself up into a moral frenzy because, as Mataibi put it, a bunch of overgrown Minecraft enthusiasts we're privately passing around a few truths like a joint. I love the way he put that. So what do you think of this guy? American hero or American zero? 800-848-9222. That's the question. A question. Since before your sun burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. Let me begin with David in the Bronx. Hello, David. Yes, good morning, Frank. Morning. I was going to focus on the alleged racist and anti-Semitic comments made by this person, but you brought up some well, fill, more fill interesting Well, fill, fill us in, because I, I don't know about, about them. Fill us in. What are, what, what are they, without being too graphic? Well, no, I just, all I've heard is just that you know, he was participating in a video where he was firing a gun and yelling racist and, and allegedly anti-Semitic slurs into the camera. Now, the whole idea behind this group is, what was it, guns and uh, God and whatever— this person clearly has some views that are out of the mainstream. But the point of the leak, or multiple leaks, which is what happened, is that whoever was in this group, somehow the data ended up in the hands of a Russian uh, troll account, which is apparently run by an American former service woman. And this is where the problem happened. Now, I don't know what his motives really were. I don't think he was acting as a whistleblower because clearly his intention was not to have these uh, documents uh, widely distributed. But part of the crime of mishandling classified documents is being reckless. And this clearly was a reckless act that has put the security of not only the United States but of Israel, but of of NATO, South Korea, and Taiwan in danger. There were were reports in there about Taiwan's um, air defenses being weak. Does China need to know that? I don't think so. This type of thing needs to be cracked down on harshly because there are lots of people in the military who have all kinds of ideas, and we don't need them deciding what should be available to the public. There's a reason we have top-secret information. I know you like to have it out there because a lot of it helps the, you know, uh, your anti-Ukraine war cause, but there is a lot of other stuff in there that's bad, and the fact that Russians – or people influenced by Russia have chosen to stand by this person has me very concerned. And I'll include Matt Taibbi, who is I've accused of being a Russian stooge for years, and Glenn Greenwald, who is also a well-known Russian stooge, because neither one of them has ever reported out anything negative about Vladimir Putin or Russia. Um, well, let's let, let me ask you about one thing that you just said, because you said a lot of interesting things. But one thing that I thought that you said was interesting, where you said... Um, I, when you're talking about me, I know you're happy about this because it helps the anti-Ukraine uh, war cause. If there's information that's true, if there is information that's true, that once it's revealed publicly, 
uh, shows that you know the the United States shouldn't necessarily be escalating its role uh, with special forces on the ground in Ukraine. Doesn't that indicate that maybe we shouldn't be ratcheting up our our involvement in this conflict? All right. Well, there was a time when I and I think you might recall where I was very concerned about the possibility of nuclear war breaking out because of this Ukraine situation. I have changed my opinion. I think it's very important that Russia not be allowed to take over Ukraine, that this war, if necessary, needs to drag on as long as possible so that Russia will think twice before trying to intervene militarily anywhere else, especially with our NATO allies, because that would cause war between the United States and Russia. I'm very skeptical of people, and I'm not accusing you, but I'm very skeptical of people on the other side who complain about, oh, we're sacrificing Ukrainians. These people don't care about Ukraine. They don't care about any of this. They have an agenda. A lot of it is uh, people who are very naive about Russia and what Russia's really doing. You know, they try to substitute China as our number one enemy. Russia is still our number one uh, enemy in the world, period. All right. And some of us recognize it. And let me just say this before I go. Frank. Sure. Yep. People like me who follow world events very closely were not surprised by any of these leaks, including the information about Ukraine. If you know what's going on in the world, none of this was a surprise. Thank you. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. Uh, uh, we'll grab a couple other people here. Paul is in Connecticut. Hello, Paul. Hi, good morning, Frank. It, with this uh, top secret paperwork, you know, big, you know, it's been in the news lately, but with President Biden, he seems nonchalant about handling top secret paperwork and, you know, discarding it like it's an old newspaper. But for a person who's, you know, I tried to go in the military, and then when I was going for a top secret clearance, paperwork, you know, they could threaten me with, you know, a year in hard labor or they could do life imprisonment. You know, they they take it very seriously. I just think for the kid, he's, you know, said his dad had a security clearance. He's just about broke as it is. They should go easy on the guy. Maybe even, you know, these days, maybe give him a job in the NSA or something if he's smart enough to be able to do a job. And then maybe I think that would be the way to go for him. Thank you, Paul. Steve in Manhattan. We've become a country of ding-dongs. But first, can I just say something about the taxes? you got to uh, repeal the 16th Amendment, which would remove the income tax if you ever did it. And the population gets bigger, the government gets bigger, and wants more money, folks. So let's not try to sound so intelligent about taxes and stuff. Okay, first of all, I would rather have the guy transfer to the U.S. Embassy in Russia or something, or China. He'd be perfect there. They'd love him. I'll give you an example. The Walker brothers in the 60s, they sold information to the, uh, to the Soviets. The Soviets were able to trail all of our naval ships, and we, they went crazy, the top personnel in our country. How would you like your kid or you to be on one of those naval ships when something like that goes on? We're a country of ding-dongs because we're, we're debating whether a guy who releases sensitive information that puts America in peril, American personnel, American troops overseas in danger, uh, and we're debating this, folks? No, no that, that's not the issue here. The issue is you don't release it. I believe you're innocent until proven guilty, and any information that comes out like that always helps the enemy, folks. Don't be a ding-dong and debate whether this guy should be released or he should be playing in a schoolyard or something with kids giving out information, because he is uh, really people like that, and I think he's low intelligence, this guy. They have access to uh, top information. That's scary. 
All right. Thank you, Steve. You know, that's a new one um, for for him. Uh, ding, he said ding-dongs five times, and I have never heard him say that before. Um, that's that's a new one, right? Ding-dong. Um, it, so there you have it. 800-848-9222. Ed is in Babylon. Hello, Ed. Hi, Frank. Uh, good morrow. Howdy. <laughs> It changes up a little bit. I want to go back to soda. Wonderful. Uh, if, you, if you look traditionally at sodas, you, know, you had sarsaparilla made from the sassafras tree, uh, root beer, and they had colors to them like green tea, water, black tea. You know, they're they're an extract, or you know, uh, you boil the root, whatever you do. And uh, then you go on to things like uh, Fanta, an orange soda. You put orange coloring in it. Uh, Mountain Dew is green. Uh, you got to watch out for Mountain Dew. It has bromide in it and competes with uh, iodine for your thyroid. So mm-hmm. even though I love this stuff, uh, as a kid, I would guzzle it. And you go on to um, your different chemicals. Um, in the laboratory, when you you isolate caffeine, it's green and crystalline in color. Uh, but chemically, you know, they can they can strip anything out of a, um, a molecule really they want, and I believe still have it retain the same properties. But, but with the sodas, so with, soda. with the colas, for instance, I think they're adding color to it. Yes, caramel color. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, this is all this is all for eye effect these days. Uh, well, look at uh, Jägermeister. I don't think they add anything to that. It's got 56 herbs in it, you know, to try and uh, cure you of your uh, of your habit of drinking. It maybe and make you think it's uh, <laughs> elk milk. Uh, what you're what you're drinking? It doesn't have any sweeteners to it. Stevia leaf, just stevia leaf. Oh, 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 oh. Okay, uh, uh, stevia. Okay. Uh, as long as it doesn't have high fructose corn No, syrup, no, nothing like that. that. Nothing like that. No, that's no. a major factor yeah, it's, in no, fatty it's, livers these days. Yeah, no, believe me. I, I, I'm aware of that, Ed. Thank you very much. Appreciate the appreciate the call. Um, I don't know about you, but I prefer to think of us as a country of cupcakes. Sweet, sometimes a little nutty, but always a delicious treat. See? Ding dong doesn't always have to be a bad thing. 800-848-9222. That's uh, 800-848-9222. Neil is on Staten Island. Hello. Hey, Frank. Uh, first thing with the soda, uh, Pepsi has to have a Pepsi clear where they took the coloring out. Right. I remember been, that. Because uh, now that I'm on a renal diet, I'm not allowed to have soda with that coloring, like for Coca and Coca Cola is my favorite soda. Well, you gotta, you it. gotta try Zevia. Get the Zevia Cola. Well, it's clear. I, I will. I am. Yeah. Clear. I didn't know it was market. I'm only allowed to have like a clear soda, like a Sprite or something, you know, that you can see through. Um, but are you a big soda drinker, uh, Neil? Say that again. Are you a big soda drinker in general? Uh, I was. I, I love Coca Cola, Frank. You know, it makes the world go around. Uh, I don't like alcohol. I love Coke. Gotcha. All but right. I, well, we all have I to have I, at least one vice. I can't have it anymore, so it doesn't matter anymore. I drank enough of my lifetime, you know, that's not going to bother me. But what does bother me is that the last call from the Bronx about uh, uh, doesn't matter. Putin uh, is invading uh, Ukraine, thinks it's a good idea. It, it's so ridiculous. Uh, this, uh, man, this administration is going to bankrupt this country. Uh, giving everything to Ukraine. We don't have money for our own things, and we're giving it to them. We don't have ammo, but we're going to give them ammo because they're running out of ammo. 
these Democrats have tried to get us to go to war with Russia since Trump. They've done everything. They've made up stories, everything they could think of. So we're going to go to war with Putin. The only thing I'm going to add, Neil, and I have to run because we got the $1,000 minute. The And uh, thank you for the call. The, the only thing I want to add, though, to what you're saying is don't fall for this Democrat versus Republican pro-wrestling trap, okay? Because some of the loudest voices itching for war with Russia are Republicans. Lindsey Graham. Mitch McConnell, uh, the list goes on and on. And um, it's not it's not a Democrat versus a Republican thing. It's a war party versus everybody else thing. All right. Seventh caller to 800-848-9222. We're going to give you a chance to play the $1,000 minute. We have done away with the James Madison uh, mandate. So there will be no James Madison. That's your clue. If there's a question, answer not James Madison. All right. Uh, seventh caller to 800-848-9222. You can be the lucky, lucky person to play the $1,000 minute. 10 trivia questions, 60 seconds straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's kind of topical. It's kind of upbeat. It's, this is good. You've redeemed yourself well from that um, from that uh, Robin Thicke song. Very upbeat song, piano-driven. Love it. Um, all right. Without further ado, let us try to see if we can't give away some money, shall we? It's time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. All right. Uh, this is uh, the other side of Minute. I thank you, Chris Libertini. Uh, the contestant, we lost her. So we are getting another backup contestant, Lee. All right, Lee in Baltimore. Hello, Lee. Hey, how you doing, Frank? I'm well, Lee. Lee, have you heard this segment before? Yes, sir. Great. So you know what to do, right? Yes, sir. You never played before, though, right? Uh, I played one time uh, back in December. Oh, okay. How'd you do? Uh, made it through four. Okay. Now, it's not too bad. I've certainly seen worse. All right. Uh, so if you're ready to play, we'll get started. Okay. What is the shortest month of the year? February. Who painted the Mona Lisa? Van Gogh. Uh, I'm sorry, Lee. It was uh, Da Vinci. Da Vinci. 
Jesus, whiz. That, okay, that's not your best performance, Lee, but uh, we're, we're going to give you something anyway. Give your give your number to uh, Kenneth, if you would, okay? Hey, sure. All right, thanks. Sorry you didn't do better, but um, there you go. I, I didn't think uh, – I thought that was fair. Fair question, right, Matt Plays? Da Vinci? Absolutely. Not, I yeah, got that one. You got that one. If I get it, you know it's Okay, that that's, the, that's the barometer. Uh, if, uh, if Matt Plays knows it, then chances are the, the Vox Populi should know it. By the way, speaking of uh, the Vox Populi in Latin terms, I I am loving the current season of Picard. Uh, I mean, this is Star Trek at its finest. This season of Picard is the best. I think it's the final season. It is the best season of the show there's been. It's only been three seasons it has made me fall in love with Star Trek The Next Generation again. You know, I always liked Next Generation. I watched it when I was on, saw all the movies. If a rerun pops on once in a while, I will I will see it. This basically Next Generation reunion that they're having on Picard is so wonderful that it makes me want to go back and rewatch the series. The only thing missing so far, and there's one episode left, uh, I think it's coming out Thursday night or Friday morning. The only thing it's missing is uh, Dr. Pulaski. Other than that, it is doing great. It is just wonderful. I, I, I have no complaints about it. Uh, the, the writing is stellar. The acting is stellar. I, I think it's just great. So much better than last season. So much better. I think they're doing a great job between developing new characters and uh, bringing back the older characters from the next generation. I really, I can't say enough good things about it. If you're a Star Trek fan and not watching Picard, especially Star Trek, the next generation, you are um, missing out because it's really just uh, tremendous. As far as I can tell, as far as in my opinion, all right. Um, now, they say today is uh, Holocaust Remembrance Day. Now, I thought we had Holocaust Remembrance Day a few months ago, and sure enough, that was International Holocaust Remembrance Day. This year is uh, another Holocaust Remembrance Day uh, because it's the 80th anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. So um, it's always important. I mean, if you think about it, really every day, should be Holocaust Remembrance Day because it is such a uniquely horrible um, event in human society that uh, really, even if you talked about it every day, it's probably not enough to make up for the brutality of what certain human beings can do to others. So... What I'm going to do is I'm going to link to the interview that I did, which was an hour long, with uh, Dr. Dan McMillan, who I'm overdue to have on this show again. I want to have him back. But he was on this show on International Holocaust Remembrance Day on January 27th, and I just linked to our interview on Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. If you didn't get to hear it, I hope you'll go back and listen to it because he really does such a great job getting into the history 
and the causes of the Holocaust. Really just a brilliant guy. So check that out if you like. Uh, Facebook.com slash Morano Fan. That's Facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O Fan. Uh, Meantime, Pamela is in New Jersey. Hello, Pamela. Uh, Good evening or morning. Uh, Morning. I think think the Tixhira dude ought to uh, have to listen to The View for a year. That should be punishment enough. <laughs> okay. Okay, that might uh, that might violate certain precepts of the Geneva Convention under cruel and unusual punishment. So, and that's although I guess he's not a prisoner of war, but uh, hey, that's very funny. Hey, you know what annoyed me? I had a coworker years ago. Um maybe about 9 10, nine, ten years ago. And you know, we got along, we were friends. And then Towards the end of our time working together, we developed a little bit of a, a romance, and it was fine. It was, but nothing inappropriate. We were both single at the time, and we would see one another from time to time. And then I, I don't want to get into the details of this because it was very well publicized at the time, and it caused me a lot of grief. I brought her to a wedding which may or may not have been the wedding of John Gotti Sr.'s grandson. And she made a total spectacle of herself. Really, I mean, was a mess. I don't know if she was drunk or on something or whatever the case may be. But, I mean, it was written about heavily at the time. I have no no desire whatsoever to revisit this story. But the... um. So I talked about it on the radio, did not mention her name, changed her name for the purposes of radio. Newspapers then wrote about the story and caused me a lot of problems, okay? And I was just incredibly embarrassed because I I like to go to a wedding and sit in the corner and drink quietly and make conversation, not to be the person everyone talks about at a wedding at all. So anyway, I I kind of did a mildly entertaining complaining rant on the radio. And I think this was about, what year is it? It was about eight years ago. And seven, eight years ago, right around then. And I have not seen her since. So last week, I have this email list that I use, uh, that I uh, that I mail to from time to time. And if you want to be added to the email list, just email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com, and I'll, email, I'll add you. Right now, I, my wife audited my credit card last week, and she found that I'm paying $130 a month for this service. So I'm hoping I get my money's worth by being able to send out some more bulk emails before I cancel it. Anyway, so I can see who subscribed, who, who unsubscribes, after my emails, and wouldn't you know it, this woman, and I haven't seen her in a while, but this woman unsubscribed from my email list. Now, I I was so annoyed and insulted by that. How does this woman come with me to a mafia wedding and then have make a spectacle of herself and then have the audacity to unsubscribe from my email list. It was really annoying. So that's that. I mean, everybody else that unsubscribed, fine. You don't want to get my emails, you don't want to get my emails. But I didn't like that one bit. I'll tell you what also annoyed me. 
My friend uh, was a sanitation worker, a, a chief, really. And he moved to, uh, he moved down south, moved to Virginia, I think. And he came up for the sanitation commissioner's wake on Sunday. And I had a, um, I saw that I had a missed call from him. He went to the wake and was going to stop by my house because I'm right by the, the funeral parlor. And I went to the wake. I didn't see him there, but I saw he signed the book. I figured maybe he was there a few minutes before him. I said, let me check my phone. Maybe he texted me. So it came up. This was at 6 o'clock that I looked at my phone. It came up that he had called me three hours early and that I had texted him. Now, I didn't text him. My phone, I must have hit something on this phone or it did something where it responded to that phone call with, I'll call you back or I'll call you right back, and then immediately I'll call you back shortly. So it's one of those automated responses that you can do when you hit a phone uh, hit a phone call to ignore. It sent both of those to him, which I didn't see at all. So my phone is declining calls on my behalf. So that annoyed me, and then he was up for the – he stayed in town for the funeral yesterday – and I said, you know, I'm right by there. Why don't you come by? And sure enough, I um, slapped through his phone call. So I would have liked to have seen um, my friend who was up for this funeral. But I, I was glad that I got to sleep. And he understood it. You know, it was 1130 for me, which is midnight for most people. So uh, I didn't get to see him, which I would have liked to. But what are you going to do? Uh, I should see. I didn't want to set my alarm because my when I, the time I went to bed, my wife was still sleeping, so I didn't want to disturb her sleep by speaking to the smart speaker or playing around with my phone. So I didn't set my alarm, and then I didn't hear the alarm on my my phone because it was too low. So slept right through his phone call and my alarm. Really irritating. All right. Uh, 15 seconds of fame in a moment, 800-848-9222. You can say whatever you want for 15 seconds. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. And the Frequent Flyers. Uh, Thank you very much for this beautiful song. Time now for you to be heard for 15 seconds. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. As part of... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Peace. Sizzle moron, sizzle moron, sizzle... John... David is from the Bronx is right. He made a lot more sense than you did. Tatera should be shot. Ugh. Mike. 
Morning, Frank. I heard uh, Springsteen tested positive for COVID after Friday night's show. You sitting up in the front row next to Chris Christie getting sprayed with Bruce Juice. I sure hope nothing's coming your way. Neil! We never thought we could have a mayor worse than de Blasio, but we certainly found it in Adams. He's a first-class meal. Raji. Agreed. Agreed. Indeed. At 8% inflation, greedy, avaricious supermarkets have raised prices by 25 to 100% without raising their employees' salaries by even one penny. Russell. Let me get this straight. D.A. Bragg overcharged Jose Alba with murder when Alba only committed manslaughter or aggravated assault. So instead of charging lesser included offenses, Bragg folded to powerful commercial interests, let this criminal Jose Alba walk the street, and now... Robert. Roger, Congressperson. Make fentanyl a Schedule One drug, illegal as heroin. And Billy... That was pretty good. Making his guitar talk like uh, like Peter Frampton. Uh, thank you uh, very much uh, for for that. That uh, that just about slams the lid on things for today. You know who I got a? Um, oh well, I'll save that for tomorrow. I got a bunch of stuff I'm going to save for tomorrow. Um, I don't rather than rush through it in a minute. You want to stay in touch with me? You can email me frank at wabcradio.com. That's frank m o r a n o at wabcradio.com. And you can also find me on Twitter at frank morano. That's frank m o r a n o. Tomorrow it's Doctor Sky Day. A lot to get to with him, and then uh, we'll do depending on how people react to my mentioning the possibility. Maybe we'll do Ask Frank Anything on Thursday, and then I'm going to be in Atlanta. Curtis is going to be here on Friday. Uh, Hope you have a wonderful day. It's ratings day today in New York, so wish us luck. Frank Morano, good day. Good day.